VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout. Get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, I'm pretty sure I heard between Jerry Lynn and Brian talking about some pockets of precipitation in and around town in different parts of the province. I don't see any snow in the forecast for the May 2-4 long weekend. We all know that many people consider it as the unofficial official opening of summer or start of summer, but it generally speaking comes with some potentially dastardly weather. Nothing like waking up in a tent uh, covered in snow. Anywho. All right, so I would have mentioned it yesterday, but big thanks, Linda, for sitting in for me. Wasn't feeling well. So Canada's going to have to wait at least another year for a Stanley Cup parade to take place on Canadian streets. The Leafs unceremoniously bounce by the Panthers. The Vegas Golden Knights get the better of the Oilers. So the conference finals are set. Some interesting teams there. You know, it's just curious, I suppose, how the national sports media covers different teams in different sports. You know, for the Oilers, it's a, oh my God, they're going to have to break up the team in the core four and Dubas has to go and up and down the line. And not really the hysterical kind of coverage of the orders getting knocked out. They're one of the favorites to move on to the Stanley Cup final, one of the favorites to win the Stanley Cup. So the commentary versus the Leafs, which is, oh, my God, to the orders was, they got a good team. They'll be back. They'll be okay. So it's just interesting. Well, I guess, you know, most of the national sports media was Toronto-centric anyway. They get a bit carried away with all things Leafs. But anyway, we're going to have to wait. Good news, though, for the Growlers. They're moving on to the Kelly Cup Finals. Maybe there'll be a Kelly Cup parade here in the city of St. John's. I guess much like the Stanley Cup parade with Alex Nohook last year. Anyway, they don't know who they're going to play. Need the winner of the Southern Final to be established. They will be playing in Florida because it's Estero and Jacksonville in that particular final. So there you go. All right, I heard Nancy Taylor with uh, Tennis NL. She's also the president, I believe, at Riverdale Tennis Club. For sports fans, tennis fans in particular, Thursday at 1 o'clock at the rooms, you'll be able to see the Davis Cup. It's the premier te- international tennis event, uh, men's event. Started back or founded in 1900. The States have won more titles than anybody else. They've won 32 times. But, of course, Canada, amazingly, is the defending champion of the Davis Cup. So you'll be able to see that. It's a massive trophy as well. So the room's Thursday at 1. Okay, so apparently yesterday, a fair bit of chat here, here on the program about litter. Now, I will admit, I just tuned in for a couple of minutes. I was trying to be nice and peaceful and quiet in the dark room. But anyway, lots of talk about litter. Curiously, and this comes from a conversation we had with organizers in Happy Valley Goose Bay, is so many people blame the corporation or the company or the outlet that sold you the product, whether it be the wrapper on your burger or the coffee cup or what have you. But of course, it's not their fault that people decide to throw it out their car window or just throw it on the ground. But they do indeed need to do a better job with provision of garbage cans and then frequently emptying the garbage cans. Because how many times have you gone to, whether it be a gas station or a fast food outlet or what have you, the garbage can might be up by the door, but it's overflowing, garbage above the rim, and so that plays a role. And also inside the reference to Happy Valley Goose Bay, they took advantage of Tim Horton's pitch-in program. Apparently they have a national program where even things like provision of bags for the community cleanup or the neighborhood cleanup that you entertain. So maybe if you're looking for some cost coverage and you're going to do something like that maybe that's a program you can avail of all right 
So in addition to litter, and talking about diverting waste from the landfills, it's International Compost Awareness Week. Now, we don't compost very much in this province, apparently, when compared to national averages or what have you. But I don't really know much about composting, and to be honest with you, I don't do it. So far be it for me to be preaching about composting. But according to Stats Canada, only one in three people compost kitchen waste in this province, about 50% less than the national average. If you are a composter, why don't you fill us in on not only why you do it, how you do it, the benefits of. So some organizations are trying to create a community space for composting. One of the pushbacks that we commonly hear is that compost brings upon the rodents, right? And in particular, the rats. Now, I think it can be avoided. I've talked to some composters who really would like to dispel that or to reduce some of the uh, concern that people have about rodents, rats in particular, if you're a backyard composter or have a community compost nearby where you live so if you're someone who knows obviously much more about it than I do join us on the program this morning to talk about it because diversion from landfills will extend the life of the landfill and of course that type of food waste is a big part of it and there's lots of issues inside the wastage of food let's bring it forward today all right one of the things that we saw during the pandemic that was a distinct contributor to litter were masks Now, long has the public mask mandates gone by the wayside, and now apparently they're going to drop the requirement to wear a mask in the healthcare settings. Now, in some areas when you have COVID-related positive results and patients, the mask will be required. Now, throughout, you know, no question that many people did indeed look at folks who were wearing a mask all day long, whether it be on an eight-hour shift, a 12-hour shift, an extended shift, especially for healthcare workers who may indeed be in that setting for 12-plus hours a day. I understood their concerns because it can get on your nerves after a certain amount of time, but I've never really fully understood the concern people had with simply having to wear it for five, ten minutes as you go in and shop, whether it be for groceries or otherwise. But remarkably... Some folks who think it's a mistake, and your opinion is welcome, folks who think it's a mistake to drop the masks are being, uh, I'll say, attacked. People are coming at them hand over fist and with quite extensive vitriol. I didn't hear the conversation on the show yesterday, but when I read through the emails from yesterday morning, I guess someone called to say that it's a problem to drop the masks. And boy, oh boy. You know, references to police data, what have you. Now, it's not mandated. It's still suggested or recommended that you wear one. And you'll do as you see fit, I suppose, with assessing your own risk and the risk to others around you and the self-assessment tool that is now going to have to be utilized to go into a hospital setting or a healthcare setting. But anyway, the mask mandate for those workers and patients and visitors alike is now gone. You want to take it on? Let's do it. Okay. All right, stick with a bit of health. So this coming from the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, regarding the number of fourth-year MUN-Med students who are going to stay and work in the province. So for some reason, whenever we bring up the fact that we are subsidizing, and in many cases heavily subsidizing education in post-secondary, especially at Memorial University or the Marine Institute, and we'll get to Marine Institute in a second. So, you know, when we say that maybe, just maybe, They should have to stay and work here in the province for whatever determined amount of time. And in this case, they're going to have a return and service agreement to work here for 12 months. I've been told that, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, you can't tell people where they have to work. 
but the competitive level to get a seat in Mons Med School, I don't imagine we're going to have any trouble filling up those 80 seats with highly qualified, smart, intelligent, driven students, men or women alike, even if there was a return to service agreement as part and parcel with going to Mons Med School, one of only 17 in the country. So I guess they're saying that the bursary being offered, which is $7,500 in funding to full-time students in their fourth academic year, they, in turn, will sign this return of service agreement and stay here for 12 months. Okay. So, and of course, all of these things are stackable, whether it be come home year incentive or uh, incentives to, say, be a doctor in Bonavista or New West Valley, and or for some of the, did I already say come home here? Yeah. And for doctors to set up a family practice in more rural parts of the province, you know, huge money is being offered. I guess some of it's working, but is 22 a big shot from the rooftops number? I guess every doctor helps, but anywho, let's go. And on that front, look, it's been a long, long run, and we all know it to be true. The pandemic has impacted different people in different ways, of course, because we're not all the same. If you get a survey sent out by Stats Canada about COVID-19 and its impact on mental health, you know, nobody, this is voluntary, right? The census is not voluntary, but this one is. If you get one, try to take the time to fill it out because good data will hopefully lead to good policy. And we know that pre-pandemic, we were talking about one in five uh, Canadians are impacted by mental illness. And there is a distinction between mental illness, mental wellness, and mental health. And of course, that conversation is always welcome on this program. Now, we went from one in five to one in four. So we know there's been a distinct issue surrounding our mental well-being. So if you want to get that survey, please do indeed take the time to fill it out. And off we go. All right, stick with Mun here for a second. So apparently, Memorial University contracted a national public relations firm to help them navigate the concerns regarding former President Vianne Timmons and the issue regarding her indigenous heritage. Now... People were quick to hop on it, and so be it if you're a community that was impacted. I thought that Dr. Timmons tried very carefully to parse her words so that she wasn't saying, I am indigenous, as opposed to, I have in indigenous lineage. Now it's been traced, and maybe there were some exaggerations. I don't know. I mean, the story is pretty interesting. So they spent almost $14,000 on the PR. In addition to that, now that the university is looking for a new president, let's hope they've come up with a way and an understanding how they can, you know, entertain this search without costing $150,000, which is what it cost when they hired Vian Timmons. You know, I have lots of people, whether it be issues surrounding the O to Newfoundland or anything else, is, you know, should we have the prime focus right here in our own backyard and maybe, just maybe, there's a Newfoundland or Labradorian who's a top quality leader academic and may be perfectly suited to take on the job. It's been a while since I've been a Newfoundland and Labradorian at the helm of Memorial University, and if you think that's important, let's do it. And I'm interested in getting down to CBS to see this new, in conjunction with the Marine Institute, this ocean research tech facility. They've already entertained partnerships with private companies to bring their tech here to put it to the test and maybe bring it into their operations formally. But, you know, there's talk about an opportunity for growth here. There's no reason in the world we shouldn't be the gateway to the north and the center for excellence for all things ocean. Because, remarkably, we know very little, in reality, about the ocean. And, you know, we're pretty well positioned here geographically to be part of it. But I'm looking forward to getting down there and taking it on. All right, we hear stories about labor shortages across the country. And in many industries, it's absolutely real. 
in this province, there are some 43,000 folks of retirement age who are still actively looking for work. There is no question, even if it's subconsciously, issues regarding ageism when employers are looking at who must, might be best suited to take on a job. Now, of course, you know, many of these people will absolutely have the work ethic required. You know, some of them may feel like they have to work to make ends meet or keep the wolf away from the door. But if you're one of those retirees and you know that just when they look at your, your CV, your resume, and see how old you are, they maybe don't even get any careful consideration. It's a big subject. It's a big topic. So we know many people listening to this program may indeed be inside of that 43,000 folks looking for a job. And then, you know, you look at some industries which have long been difficult and uh, offered a turnstile for employers, the food industry. You know, it used to be for young Canadians who are getting to work for the first time, one of their first real jobs, is to get a job inside a restaurant. Whether it be as a waiter, or a hostess, or a host, a maitre d', a cook, or whatever the case may be, dealing with the public is not easy, and it's not an easy job. But apparently it's becoming harder and harder, and I know some restaurateurs that are struggling mightily in that world. And the whole world of restaurants and hours of operation and seasons of operation are going to change. But let's talk about retirees trying to get in on the job market. And in the world of, of retirees, I always try to be careful to say this the way I mean it. When we see the scammers and all the frauds that are out there trying to separate you from your hard-earned money, sometimes we talk about seniors as being the target. Why? Because they seem to be, you know, for a variety of reasons. It doesn't, it's not offered to insinuate that seniors are gullible. I wouldn't, why would I say that? You know, it would be a silly thing to offer. But because the numbers are what the numbers are, the good folks at the Clarenville Alliance Club with Leo Bonnell, they've been hosting lunch and learn sessions on frauds and scams for seniors in the region. It might be a great idea for other service organizations, whether it be with Leo Bonnell's experience and expertise in the world of finance, to put some of these out there because every time we say it, I'm sure people are rolling their eyes, look, we all know. We all might know, but it continues to happen. We all might know, but we continue to hear stories of families or seniors or other individuals of any age that have fallen for these very, very clever, professionally designed and devised scams. So, Leo and the Clarenville Lions Club, good on you for doing it, and I'm sure if you saved one person from a scammer, that's Yeoman's service. Okay. So it's Peace Officers Memorial Day today. And that's talking about officers who put themselves in the harm's way, uh, getting hurt or killed in the line of duty, which has happened very recently, of course, in the province of Ontario. On top of that, it's National Police Week. Policing, it's easy for folks to have a very negative opinion of police forces. You know, they still do a lot of good work, and the majority of police officers are top-quality professionals, but the negative stories get the attention. And I guess that's just nature of the beast and the way the world works and the way the headline, uh, headlines are grabbed or clicked. I will put this back out there because I don't think it should be a dead issue. When we talk about working with the community and community partners and community policing, which is a bit more old school than maybe some of the new advances, whether it be technologically speaking or just change in the way that law enforcement operates and I guess change in the way society behaves. The work done by Krista Fagan and mental health support dog Stella, it got some headlines and some attention for a few days and then it went away. Talk about the epitome of working with the community. We already made the reference to the survey regarding COVID and mental health. We know that Stella and Krista played an amazing role in the community and it just went away. It was privately funded. 
I've never heard a legitimate reason beyond they say, well, Stella's doing more work with the rank and file of the IRC. That's fine, but all of a sudden, every single invitation or request for Stella and Constable Fagan to make an appearance was denied across the board. So I'm going to put that back out there because I don't think that's worth letting go. And in the world of policing and criminal justice, apparently this afternoon, uh, Federal Justice Minister David Lametti is going to make some announcement regarding bail reform. We have heard the stories where people just refer to the system as catch and release, right? You go in, you face a judge, you get bail, and out you go. And next thing you know, you're charged with a crime, serious or otherwise. And one of the stories will be breach of probation, right? Or breach of an or a court order or something or other. So bail reform is important. Now, is the system positioned to have more intense bail governance? Just think about it. Somewhere in the neighborhood of two-thirds or more of the inmates just at Her Majesty's Penitentiary are on remand. I'm by no means suggesting that bail, the way it's currently structured, works because it simply does not. But, you know, when we are now going to apparently build a new prison, and whether it be the concept of P3 or otherwise, is, you know, is there a room for a remand center for very specific crimes or charges. I don't know, but bail reform is going to be interesting to hear from the federal minister this afternoon, and I think people are ready to talk about it, because it is absolutely an issue. No one should dismiss it uh, out of hand. Also in Ottawa, Michael Chong, Michael Chong, yeah, the conservative member, is set to testify in front of committee today, and this is all about, it's the Parliament Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs, regarding allegations that the Chinese government or Chinese diplomat here in this country were targeting his family back in China based on comments he made about the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghurs. So that's going to happen today. And of course, next week, we'll hear from the special rapporteur, David Johnson, regarding foreign, foreign interference, specifically Chinese. It should never be simply only about the Chinese government and their influence or interference in our elections. But those are big topics, or at least they were when they were making the rounds. Uh, last one. So it's National Seal Products Day in Ottawa. Okay. So, uh, look, awareness of what is possible with the seal, the pelt, the meat, the omega oils, or what have you, sure, it's part of it, but it does also come across as a little bit galling because if there's ever going to be any advancement in dealing with the millions upon millions of seals off our coast, we'll be expanding markets. So Canadians know what is there. They either like it or they don't. They'll eat flipper pie or they won't. They'll wear seal skin boots or they won't. They'll take some, uh, the omega-3 oil or they won't. But so what actually were you achieving with National Seal Products Day? Or is the seal conversation, for all intents and purposes, dead in the water? Is any government going to actually do anything about it? And what do anything about it actually means? I don't know. They're going to sort of say they will do something. What? Don't know. But anyway, seal products day. Okay. And if you have plans to travel with WestJet by the end of the week or later, you better start looking for options. So the union representing these, like, 1,800 pilots said they're poised to strike, and the company said, yeah, we're going to lock you out. So it's seemingly unavoidable job action with WestJet. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Okay, when we come back, let's have a great show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, I brought up composting because I read a story uh, this morning about composting, community uh, efforts being made here on the East Coast and on the West Coast. One of the people involved in the Georgetown Community Compost is Viviana Ramirez Luna, and she joins us on line number three. Good morning, Viviana. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. Very excited to be here. I admit it off the top of the program. I don't know a lot about the process of composting. I understand the upside and the benefits of and the issue regarding diverting food waste from the landfill. But why did you take this on as aggressively as you have? Uh, well, I also learned about composting uh you know, an intense way, I'll say. A couple of years ago, this is rather new to me. I also came from uh, the focus on diverting waste, but over time, I've also learned about the important connection between compost and food production. Um, and from the waste diversion perspective, we got the Georgetown Community Composting Project going for two years now. Uh, where we have three beans and a few families from the neighborhood come and drop out their organics. And then I take care of the process that there are no rats, there are no others, uh, that we produce good compost that is used for people's gardens or the community garden. The beans are in a Kingsgate condo. They have a beautiful green space that has always been open to the public. And so it's been really nice to add this project to their space, uh, get their support, um, provide compost for the community garden. And this is interesting, too, because a lot of people who participate in the project don't have gardens. They're also interested in just diverting organics. Some people say that it's painful when they have to throw their organics to the garbage. And so they're pretty happy uh, with the project. Um, it's um, a way to fix some pains for people, uh, people who don't have the space or they have, but composting hasn't worked in their backyards because it's too much work, um, yeah, for different reasons. Georgetown is a really tight-knit neighborhood, a real uh, interesting place. You know, went from an area that was getting pretty run down to now it's really quite vibrant. What kind of support are you getting or what kind of pushback might be also experiencing? Good question. So, um we started in Mollock Street uh, in the Stella Circle building because Stella is also part of this project. And after a few days that we put the beans together, some neighbors complained, um, even before we started collecting the organics. So this this association with, you know, composting rats, others, without even giving us the chance to start. Um so it was like the heart of the neighborhood. A lot of people around sign up. Like we went uh, around the neighborhood uh, block, just knocking on doors, telling people about the project. And so people were like, "Yes, sign in." Some had already experienced from like ten, twenty years ago when the city of St. John's pilot uh, organic collection, but it, it didn't go well, uh, or they it didn't go through. Um, and so people were really excited. So I don't know who complained or how many, but the reality is we had to stop. That's when we moved to Kingsgate um, and for different reasons, but we managed to continue. So we did have a good um, intake in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, and one of the lessons I learned is, you know, you can have 10 happy people, but just one unhappy person can stop you. But luckily, two years later, we haven't had any complaints or anything. And anyone who can walk around will see that 
uh, would even notice that it's a composting project because there are no rats or others or any other thing, uh, negative thing that people usually associate with composting. We know the benefits of, whether it be for a fertilizer, so to speak, or diversion. You, you mentioned that you're taking on the work for folks who may not even have their own garden, just want to contribute uh, their food, their organic waste, as opposed to finding its way to Robin Hood Bay. How much work is involved for someone who wants to pick up the practice? Uh, not a lot. Uh, I actually have a few uh, spots <laughs> if people want to sign in. So they collect their organics in a bucket in their kitchens, uh, being very careful to remove stickers and to chop up uh, the um, their kitchen scraps because that helps to speed up the process in the bins. It's not mandatory, it's just it, it helps. Um, and then they walk to the um, to the site. Now I do know that for some people it's far, and some people are busy, and they cannot do it. And in the long term, I want to see those problems fixed too, with curbside collection, some sort of pickup. But for now, people living close by and willing to walk with the bucket is what it takes. Okay, let's speak to the elephant in the room. And I, I will admit, I was part of this group that thought composting had a direct relationship with the amount or the number of rodents, rats in particular, that I would find on my property. <laughs> What's the reality? Well, rats are there, no matter what. And, you know, before we had the cards, people were putting their garbage out overnight. Um, and that probably attracted way more rodents. The beauty of this project is there is a team behind the process taking care of all of it. Rats and others happen when there's no um, maintenance, when there's no care of the piles. Um, the beans that we use are off the ground, so rats cannot get in there. And again, I go every two, three days to check the site. Participants are awesome and they're very careful when they dump the organics in the bin, so there's no spills, which would attract animals. Um, but that doesn't happen. Um, so it's all about maintenance, uh, keeping an eye constantly. So it is, it is a job um, um, to keep to keep this. It, it's um, you know, there is a tradition of backyard composting, and the beans that we've used are different types, and some people say this is a mouse that, you know, uh, chew on this bean, and I definitely have rats here. But at the same time, I don't know if people are mixing their kitchen scraps with other materials like paper, cardboard, leaves that would absorb um liquids and others and they will speed up the process so there's no like food exposed for animals so there is you know composting is simple and again there is a tradition of composting in this province but there is more work involved um not difficult but constant to avoid problems and as we also want to to show with the community composting project that it's low maintenance uh, but it does require attention um, and a team behind making sure that everything goes smoothly. I really appreciate your time this morning, Viviana. What do people need to do if they want to get involved with your group? 
Well, um, they can email me at Viviana at Planet Consulting. So Planet is like planet, but double E. <laughs> so I run a consulting firm called Planet Consulting. You can also Google uh, Community Composting, Newfoundland or St. John's and, and Planet Consulting and my contact information uh, will pop up. So... Um, and we're also creating a created the Newfoundland uh, composting network. So wherever you're in the province, you can always get in touch with me, and um, I'll keep you posted on how we progress with community composting because we want to create uh, jobs and make this um, an economic, social, and environmental activity in our province. I really appreciate your time this morning. Stay in touch. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. As Viviana Ramirez Luna, she's heading up to Georgetown Community Compost. And, I mean, it's an interesting topic. And, you know, we talk about reduce, reuse, recycle. Lots of opportunities to recycle, but it just popped to my mind while I was speaking with Viviana about recycling. You wonder how many people you've got either a pull-out garbage bin that has garbage in the front, recycling in the back, or you have the blue bag in your back porch or something or other. We also have to be pretty careful. Now, recycling numbers are up, and which is a good thing, and I think some of that is instigated by the introduction of the clear bag for our garbage in the city of St. John's. But here's an interesting fact. Let's say, for instance, you finish the peanut butter, all right, and you go to rinse it out because it's a recyclable vessel, and if you don't rinse it out properly, a spoonful of peanut butter can ruin a ton of recyclables that become useless and just end, end up in the landfill. So when we recycle, we got to make sure that we clear out all of the product. Peanut butter in particular apparently is a bad one. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the fishery. Oh, and on that front, so it looks like some snow crab harvesters are going to break ranks in the solidarity of the boat tie-up, and they're going for the crab. You know, some of them say they can make a go of it at 220. And some profit, some revenue is better than zero. And for some businesses, if they don't execute the snow crab fishery, they may indeed not be around to even take it on next year. So I'm not sure exactly what Pamela Patton, who's the president of CNL, wants to talk about. But in addition to some harvesters going, my email is flooded every day since this began with harvesters who, well, please keep my name out of it. They want to go, but they have fear of retribution. We'll see what's on Pamela's mind after this talk away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Let's take a more to the president at CNL. That's Pamela Patton. Good morning, Pamela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Well, I can't say it's a good morning, I guess. It's a little disheartening, isn't it? On what front? Well, it's, and I'm not against any fisher person for going. The whole system itself, I think, is the problem. Um, again, we knew this would happen at some point, that we would have to cave. I mean, we owe the debts on this stuff. Um, crab is like the biggest fishery on the island. Um, but what, what saddens me is that we just gave in to major corporate control. The fact now, how I personally feel, and I can't speak for everybody because, again, as, as we all know, it's kind of all over the place, um, is I bought a license, but I don't feel like I own it. We're in a situation, the first time ever, I mean, amongst this crab dispute, um, the earner berry wasn't correct for lobsters. They stopped buying lobsters. I feel we're now in the age of... Personally, they own our licenses, right? 
the day of switching bars for betterment or whatever, that's all done. I believe that the ASP was, when that joined up, was a complete ruination of Ms. Land's fishery. And I respect people have to go. Like, I can relate. Uh, we bought our enterprise, my husband did, in 2011 uh, in 3TS. A few years in, the crab kind of disappeared here. So we had an enterprise over half a million dollars and with no crab. And most enterprises, obviously, that have crab, that is what the value of the enterprise is largely based on. So today, now we have a lot of people who've bought in, obviously, all in big money. I mean, this isn't going to cover costs, right? Well, I don't know. Some harvesters say they can make some profit out of that two twenty a pound. The the concept of corporate control has always been part and parcel with conversations regarding the fishery, and I don't know how that's ever going to end. But isn't it fundamentally how the price gets set that gives it the air of corporate control? Because the FFAW puts in a price, the processors put in a price, and the panel picks one or the other. So when it came to two twenty. That simply was a decision that ended up coming from the price-setting panel who said the quiet part out loud. They said, this is probably not the right price. So if we're going to reduce what you, you call corporate control, doesn't it start with how the prices are set? And then we, then we can factor in trip limits and all that kind of stuff as well. But price will be the be-all and end-all for most. Yes, exactly, Patty. And there are people who would make money. Um, we sat down and done the math. Um, my husband owns his enterprise. He would have. But for the betterment and everybody, really, I mean, smaller licenses, uh, people who have bought in recently in 3ETS have paid millions, right? Um, so, like, yes, you're talking that uh, that is a huge problem. And the one thing that we don't have is representation for the enterprise owners. When they're all in discussing the price based on markets and stuff, I think it's pretty important that the cost to bring this product in should be into that equation. And if they're looking for markets, I mean, they have to make that known, right? Like, no business can operate with anything, um, you know, not turning a profit. Um, I can say that, obviously, I, I respect them for going because, if and you know, you have to make something. I, I, but, like, we're in a place now that these licenses got drove up based on the prices of the last couple of years, which I want to point out was ASP prices. And no real answer. I mean, yes, markets change, but sure, how does a billion-dollar industry go to people worrying about getting EI? You know, we've seen it all play out on the Fisherman's Forum, and it is scary times. And with respect, I mean, most fish people obviously need EI due to our seasons are cut back. Um, where, you know, there's certain species have absolutely no market we can't fish, cod being one. Um, and, like, it's all corporate. Right. It's all controlled. The whole system is controlled to lead us here. We can only fish what they have markets for, what they want, when they want. Um, it kind of leaves us really shorthanded on options. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Like when I came here 23 years ago, people were fishing from March until December, uh, doing herring into crab, crab into lots. There's lots into whelk, into scallops, into codfish. We are literally down now to mainly a three, four-month fishery in 3PS, one of very lucrative places on the island, and it comes back to what you can sell and when you can sell it. It's very controlled, and I think the disheartening for me isn't about people going fishing because everybody wanted to go to work, and there are people that have, you know, mainly primarily crab and doesn't have a lot. You can't ban them for that, but, you know, how are we going to stand up moving forward? That That's the key point. That's That's... What do we do? I mean, the Newfoundland fishery is getting killed here, right? And, it, and it's getting smaller all the time. And now we have core licenses that are soon going to, you know, people are aging out. 
we're going to lose more. Our voices are getting smaller all the time. Our representation is weak. I mean, you know, they're going right now with their chickens with their heads cut off at this point. Um, nobody's on par. Like, you know, yeah, I'm not trying to push CNL, but that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to round up every enterprise owner so we could actually have a voice, right? Yeah, and one front where enterprise owners do have a very loud voice is the decision to tie up or to fish, because I would imagine, even if it's quietly, a lot of the crew are hoping that their skipper makes a decision to go for the crab, because, you know, just like the people in the plants, they may indeed be in a community where the fishery remains uber important, important, and they may be thinking, boy, I hope they go at it, because I'm out of EI, and I got to get back to work. I need my, I need not only my pay, but I need my stamps. I would imagine the same thing for the crew, but on that front, the enterprise owner has or holds all the cards. Well, yes, and the thing is, I mean, we respect that. Um, but again, like, you know, if the crew was trusting us with their lives to go out to sea, then they have to trust that we're trying to make the best decision for future, right? And with respect to the plants, I mean, that being used against us is really sad um, because the plants own quotas. I'd say almost every plant on the island has a quota because what they tend to do is go into a broken community um, and, and say, you know, I'm going to revamp some work in this community, and the government ends up giving them some sort of quota. Um, but these aren't barely being utilized, and that's another disheartening thing, to, you know, to allow um, these processors to peg fishermen to be stopping all this work when the reality is they have work. They just don't want to utilize what they got, whether the markets aren't high or, or whatever. That could actually have helped everybody if crab was so bad. I mean, they have fish. They have uh Gallops, they have all kinds, like put the boats to work. They can put these corporate licenses on the boats of their choosing that would have, you know, put work into the plant to some of the fishermen. Um, but instead, they'd rather stereotype us to be the bad guy. I mean, it, it's to the point now, somebody made a comment on the fishermen's forum that Quincy has uh, foreign workers in Cupids. And they're trying to let the public believe that they aren't getting paid. And a comment was even made that they're collecting recyclables for lunch money. Yeah, I have no earthly idea. And I'm not pitting one against the other, or certainly not my intention. My point was that not the plant owners, but the plant employees, the workers are probably hoping that they get some work out of this snow crab season, not about the plant owners and who they're utilizing. But interestingly, numbers come from ASP regarding uh, temporary foreign workers working in the plants that the snow crab processing plants, I think the number was, they said, 22. There's between 45 and 125 temporary foreign workers working in each and every plant, which I was a little bit surprised by. It, it's a lot. Um, I don't think there's any in our area right now. There was talks of it a couple of years ago of bringing them in. But, you know, <laughs> the plants operating here, and I, I don't know, I, I can't say, but, I mean, the locals that work there are saying their pay is no better than when it was FPI. So, like, it, it's going to be hard to get workers with today's cost of living, which brings us back full circle into us wanting a better price, right? Understood. Uh, anything else you'd like to say, Pamela, before I take one more call? No, just wish everybody well, and I hope that they think going forward there has to be a plan put in place um, because, you know, this is going to be the demise of the fishery. I appreciate this. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Pamela Patton. She's the president at CNL. So unless there's a complete restructuring of how the price is set, you know, could there, should there be someone who is an industry professional market analyst be brought in when there are these types of standoffs, whatever, you know, say that lasts for a week and 
operate like for instance as a, an arbitrator and a binding decision that comes out and that would be removing some of the emotion from either the union or the processors themselves because whatever is working pardon me whatever's in place today ain't working let's go to line number two good morning wilford you're on the air yeah i'm not very happy customer this morning what's going on uh i broke down norway and corner broke about two weeks ago, and my son went out to tow the car, and the car was gone. Okay? Okay, so where did you break down, sorry? In corner broke. Okay. And my son went out to get her, and she was gone. So the thought somebody swiped her. So I phoned the R&P twice. She didn't know what happened to her. Well, I was talking to the tow company this morning, and she's in there in the memory store, so going to take her off the road. So it's going to copy 500 bucks now to get her back. I'm only on a fixed income. So where you broke down, was it just dead right there in the middle of the road, blocking traffic on a two-lane no. road? or where, where, Describe no, where it was. She was on the side of the road, sir. Okay. On the side of the road, but they should have let me know first. It's certainly easy enough if with the you know cooperation with the uh, with the police to find out who owns the vehicle and get a status update as to how long it's been there. Are you planning to get it out or whatever before you just put a five hundred dollar tow job in place? Fair enough. That's a, yeah, you know, it's not right. I'm only on a fixed income, and every day she's there, she's thirty dollars a day. So how long was it there before they towed it? I'll say about two weeks. Oh, so it took you a while to get at it, though? Yeah. Took me a while. <laughs> so what were you planning on doing? I was planning on, my son was planning on going out. Well, he works in the garage, okay, in, in Cornerbrook. And he was planning on going in his bus, going out and put around in a trailer and tow her in. But when we went out there, the car was gone. We didn't went to the car. So I phoned the RCMP twice, and he told me they didn't know where she was still. So I phoned the old company today, and the, the, the cops told him to take her out the road. So somebody's not, not telling the truth. Wilford, what took you so long to come up with a plan to get the car off the road? Well, first thing now, I got roadside system. I thought I, never, I didn't think I had it. So I had a phone home and, and then a lot of work due to it. So the time I got around to it now, she was gone. It was 2015. I don't even know what the bank owns it. Yeah, that's like most of us. The bank's own my rig, too. Um, well, it's too bad you're going to have to pay that bill. Are you able to do it before you face the daily fine or the daily additional charge? Or is it somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 bucks a day? No, I keep, keep, no way I can do it, sir. Well, so I'm, no, on, I'm, on, I'm on fixed income. I only get that once a month. There was a black SUV on this, uh, the shoulder of the Outer Ring Road. Uh, it, was, it was certainly there all week last week, and I was long, every time I drove by it on my way to work, I was thinking, you know, when does someone tow that vehicle? Because it might not be on the road or in the lane, but it still poses a potential danger for people driving around, so I was curious when that would be gone, and it's gone this week. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, but I've seen cars on the road for months. 
Yeah, fair enough. And we've heard those types of stories around here. People send me pictures in the email saying, this clunker has been sitting here for whatever, 30 days. and wonder who's going to do anything about it. Uh, I'm sorry it happened to you, Wilfred. appreciate your time. Hopefully someone can help you out. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, that's big whopping sum. You know, do you think it should be incumbent on the community, the municipality, in cooperation with the police, to get in touch with the person who owns the vehicle to see what's going on? Because at some point, the municipality is just going to tow it. But do you think there should be an additional step where they, you know, they get the license plate, which we should be able to directly link to the vehicle's owner, and through even one simple phone call, figure out what's next steps, and if they don't have a plan, then, of course, the community through hiring a tow truck are going to tow it so what do you think should happen let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number five good morning nikki you're on the air hi it's nikki calling i just wanted to call today to um chat and give a little bit of a i guess customer or buyer beware to the public especially in uh, st john's newfoundland okay so i i actually um live in toronto right now but i still have a home in newfoundland so i have a rental property there and uh there was a fire in November 2021, so a year and a half ago now, and uh, I've been dealing with insurance ever since, and the home still isn't done. Um, It was supposed to be a six-month job. We're now 18 months in, um, and throughout the whole process, I've had endless issues. The first contractor, the work was so shoddy, it involved safety hazards, and there was a lot of passing the buck between who's responsible. So I I faced that, and uh, there was about a four-month lag and a holdup in the job dealing with a safety issue that was created in my home. That finally got taken care of, and then there was another hold because there were so many problems accusing me of having caused damage to my own home. They refused to fix things that they broke. It was really remarkable, um, the things that happened. So I had no choice, really, to let them go, right? Uh, There was too many issues. Okay, so, I mean, your experience is your experience. I guess, luckily Mm -hmm. for me, I had nothing but a terrific experience when my basement flooded out there a few years ago. So is the holdup... Trying to get a new contractor in place? Is that where we are? No. So there, so after a couple of months of there really being a lag after the safety issue was taken care of, um, there was a new um, a new provider put in place. And to be honest with you, I haven't had many issues with them. What's happening now is basically it was discovered that there was no hot water in the house. So my property manager went up to investigate the issue, discovered that the breaker to the oil-fired hot water furnace was turned off. Investigated that with the oil company. They came out to look at it and saw that the chimney was falling apart. So through that per- through that process, we had a couple of masons come out and assess the situation, and I investigated with the oil company, and the oil, um, sorry, the, the power to that breaker was turned off for at least four months. That's the, that's the extent of it that I can prove. It was probably longer than four months, and as a result, the furnace that exhausts through the chimney was turned off, is what I'm saying, and that caused deterioration to the chimney, and now the chimney has to be replaced. And the insurance company hasn't given me a decision on what what they're doing with that. They're basic. They've basically alluded to it potentially being my responsibility. It was over two months ago that this issue was discovered, and my house is uninhabitable until it's addressed because the oil company 
said that the chimney is a safety issue, so we cannot turn on the furnace or the hot water until the chimney is replaced. But of course, the issue there, very likely, and correct me if I'm wrong, is yep. that unless it can be the, the quality or the caliber of the chimney, the safety of the chimney, unless it can be attributed to the fire, then of course it may have been a pre-existing condition that was going to be addressed whether or not it was uh, a fire or a flood or an oil leak or something. So is that the concern here? So they're not, that's the problem. They're not giving me feedback on that. But my understanding from the Masons was if that furnace was turned off for what we know to be at least four months, because there wasn't a drop of oil used in at least four months, they're saying that that would have accelerated the life of the chimney and it would cause extensive damage. So I didn't have any issues with my chimney before. There was no real problems with it. But they're saying because the furnace was turned off and there was nothing exhausting through there, ice and snow would have gotten in there and caused cracks in the chimney and caused deterioration of the chimney. So that was my understanding. It was supposed to do their own assessment. And my understanding is that they did that over six weeks, almost two months ago now. And I still haven't gotten any reply from them. Nothing, not a word. So is the only outstanding issue for insurance coverage the chimney? Because yeah, that's, th- that's, that's the biggest hilarious. thing okay. holding it up now. The other deficiencies that I had throughout the project, most of that has been addressed at this point. Um, it's it's the chimney holding it up now. And I, I like I said, I, I emailed them. I've been corresponding only through email with them over the last six months because of the issues that I've had and the accusations that have been made against me and my property manager and things going missing in my home and so on. So we've been communicating via email, and I reached out to them about a month ago looking for an update yet again. And they said, oh, yes, we, we worked on the assessment. We're waiting on the paperwork. Still nothing. Now, my, my story was in the uh, Telegram uh, on the weekend, and the insurance company did reach out to me after I went public on social media last week. But it was really to address outstanding um outstanding money that they owed me with regards to my utilities. So because I'm a rental, uh, my home is a rental property, I had coverage for my rental income for the house, but that was only for up to one year. So I've been paying fully out of pocket for the past six months on this house with now with this chimney issue now being outstanding for over two months waiting on waiting on an issue for it. And I'm covering absolutely everything. My insurance has run out. They refused to take any acknowledgement or responsibility for the four months that I was advocating and fighting with them to do something about the safety issue. And now, again, another two months, and then there was a lag between contractors. So it's been there has been months at a time with no work being done at the house at all. Just out of curiosity, what's the cost for uh, chimney replacement? Is it so a two-story home, a bungalow? What are we? What are we talking? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a two. Well, it's a bungalow, but it has a fully developed basement. So it's a two-unit home. Yep. And basically, to there's two different quotes I was given. So to put in a prefab, I you know I don't know sort of the all the tech around that, but to p- replace it with a prefab, it would be about eight to ten thousand dollars to put that in. If I wanted to bring the chimney back to its original functionality, meaning putting in a chimney that I could potentially use the fireplace down the road if I wanted to, which was the condition of the of the chimney before this happened, they're saying. Uh, they're saying up to $18,000 to do that. Yikes. The mason that I had come in and assess it. I appreciate the time, but I'm sorry for your troubles. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care, Nikki.
Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, how are we doing out there, David Williams? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Nick, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, just following up with the, your caller just before me about the insurance company she's dealing with. Uh, I'm in the midst of uh, doing a claim with them as well right now, and it's nothing but a nightmare to deal with that company. And basically what's boiling down to now, I've got to hire my own adjuster, or my own, sorry, my own appraiser, to uh, appraise a vehicle I had that was in a car accident uh, because the way the insurance companies do it now, they use a company called AutoSource, which is 95% of their uh, revenue and income is insurance companies. And what AutoSource does, they look up listings, and the listings, like, to be truth be known, to protect yourself, you almost want to go out and make six false listings just so you're covered every year. Because uh, I'm sorry, what does that mean? Basically, this company goes and looks uh, looks for listings of uh, vehicles for sale. You almost need to go out and make five or six uh, false listings just to cover yourself in case you get in an accident. Because if uh, you can't find the listings, what the value of your vehicle, they they just judge it accordingly. Like if someone's got one there that's in half the condition of yours, or uh, so forth, they'll uh, they'll give you what that one's worth, and which is not fair because uh, your vehicle's worth a lot more and cost more uh, to get made. Uh, like, for one, my, one of my vehicles is a specialty. It comes uh, from the United States. I had, after I had the argument with the insurance about what they're giving me and what they're going by, and when I asked for a copy of the listing, she couldn't give it to me. She said, oh, I don't know where it's to. I said, you never took a copy for your file. You got a claim going on here. And my own brokers were a bit astonished by it as well because uh, they've even been trying to get a copy of the listing off. And then, so anyways, after all the heen and hawing back and forth, she asked me for my, for listings that I could find. And I found them. But the thing is, yes, they're Canadian vehicles. Yes, they're owned by Canadians. But they're on an American website, which is in U.S. dollars. And she said to me over email, I'm not giving you no conversion for U.S. dollar. But that's that's part of the, the appraisal. You have to. Even uh, when I, I I had to go out and get my own appraiser. Yeah, how does that how does that factor in though, Nick? If you bought something in American dollars, because it doesn't change the value of the vehicle or the value does. of the product. It's the it's the currency exchange. That's the value. You got almost forty percent in exchange right there. And uh, if you go buy it in Canada, that forty percent is already ticked down. Yeah, but does anybody factor that into uh, appraising the value of anything, regardless of where you bought it? Uh, yeah, they do. And uh, anyway, really? that, that was one. That was point that was put to me as well uh, by um, another appraiser that I called, uh, another company that insurance companies use as well. Now, well, you look at it like this, Patty. You can buy a Corvette in the States for, uh, what, 45, 50 grand, but it's 100 in Canada. That's because the exchange has been factored in when it comes to Canada. Now, the other part of it is there was ads like in Montreal and ads in uh, Vancouver and that that basically had the vehicles there, but she didn't consider them ads because they, were, uh, they had a set dollar amount more than what she wanted to pay out. So she wouldn't include those ads. So anyways, lo and behold, uh, this company that the lady mentioned before me, uh, they're buying up all the small insurance companies in Newfoundland, and they're basically setting their own rate at what they want to charge for stuff. Like, um, to give you an example, 
I know uh, one company right now that just went out to get his uh, limousine insurance renewed, and uh, he was only paying 6500 last year, which is a lot, but it's not as much as what he's got to pay this year. No claims, no tickets, no nothing. They said industry is driving it up, and uh, basically he's got to pay 85000 all money down, no payment plan. So that's what we're looking into right now. And this is why you got no taxis. Same reason. It's not worthwhile having a taxi on the road when you got to pay all these rates and stuff like that and jump through hoops for all this stuff. This It's outrageous what's going on. And with that insurance company, because I don't want to mention their name, but um, they're buying up everything, and they're, they're basically getting a monopoly on their, all the insurance companies. Are, like they've got Johnson's, they've got Anthony's, they've got Steers, and the list goes on. So, I mean, when do we get control of this? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it all basically, to me, started when Andrew Fury and the Liberals uh, squeezed in no-fault insurance, which basically is just out to lunch. They said to save us money. I My policy only went down like 100 bucks. That's government policy? Insurance the issues gov- are dealt with at the PUB. Well, well they, they squeezed through the no-fault insurance. And now, regardless of, who, regardless of who the government is, whether it be setting rates for sitting in a cab or insurance-related matters or compensation for soft, uh, soft tissue injury or what have you, government doesn't make those decisions. But the government said and put in place no-fault insurance. Let the insurance companies ride it right through during the pandemic. When nobody's paying attention enough, often, that's when this thing all went through. And, and the issue regarding cabs and insurance hasn't changed in a long time. The problem that they have is that they're automatically inside a facility insurance as opposed to, you know, based on their driver's abstract to get into traditional insurance because that's exactly. their issue. And Exactly. But the, but the, their issue is the same as uh, what, I just, what I just explained to you. Their, their insurance is going to begin this year. Just like that one drive, that one company that I just mentioned, theirs went, uh, theirs is going up to eighty five hundred, two thousand dollars, in one year, with no tickets, no claims, no nothing. So they're getting the same smack. So yes, this does affect them in the same way. So I mean, you know, you're not going to have any more cabs, and pretty soon uh, you'll be seeing everybody taking the metro bus going everywhere they want to go, from a wedding right down to downtown. I mean, there's nothing around uh, in St. John's now. You're lucky there's what three limos left in town opposed to 10 and 12. Here's so. something from uh, a representative of an insurance company. I'll leave them unnamed. They didn't say yeah. they, they said, if they are using a U.S. dollar value to appraise the vehicle, you should ask to be paid in U.S. dollars. Exactly. And that's that's exactly what I'm saying. But the, the broker, but the intact, or sorry, I can't say their name. The, the insurance company that I'm dealing with, I asked for a different appraiser because the, the one that they used... Uh, I knew we never had much. I'm not gonna say no names. A different adjuster, an appraiser. The one that looked at the adjuster is one that sets the case. The appraiser looks at the vehicle, and the appraiser that was involved. I knew he never had much qualifications because I knew where he previously worked before he got in his job, and there's no way he didn't he uh, did any amount of schooling. It's just my my broker told me he said the problem is is that they're hiring just anybody for these jobs now because they can't get them. <clears throat> So I said that. So I mean, I get screwed because uh, someone's unqualified to do what they're doing. And uh, here I find this guy's on my Facebook. So I messaged him, and then he immediately blocked me <laughs> when he realized that he's the one doing my vehicle. And uh, so I told uh, to my my appraiser or my adjuster, sorry, that I wanted a new appraiser you know, due to conflict. And I said I don't know if uh, I got if I got an issue with this guy or not. And uh, so, anyways. The case manager took over, and she said, I'll get you a new appraiser. And then later on, through the jigs and the reels, 
And we kept talking. She kept referring back to this guy. I said, I thought we were getting a new appraiser, a new uh, new adjuster in the fall because the way, the way things were going, because my own broker requested it. And uh, she said, no, you're getting what you're getting now, and that's it. And they're so far out to lunch, it's not even funny. The emails I got, is like it's appalling. Like uh, I'm surprised that uh, they're allowed to even get on the way they're getting on because I, I literally can't settle a claim because of uh, one person's... Uh, way of dealing with things and my own my own brokers and their manager of the local company here in town they can't even understand why they're getting on like the way like the way they are like they can't get no headway with them so it's not just me it's the actual my my actual brokers can't get no headway with them so there's an issue going on and i've never had this issue before when i had problems like making a claim if i had to make a claim with the insurance i've never had this problem until this no fault insurance came into play and this no fault is nothing but it's a joke yeah, it, it really is, and it should never have been put into place. I would have sooner the government ran uh, insurance company, same what BC got out there. I mean, something like that would have been better than this no fault because this only gives the insurance companies more ways of uh, basically not give, taking your rights away of uh, claiming because uh, the people that hit my vehicle were 100% at fault. Why can't I deal with their insurance company direct? And I was told, oh, well, that's the, that's the thing. Now, with no fault insurance, you deal with us directly, and we deal with them, and you got no communication with them whatsoever. And I was like, wow. It's a lot easier the other way than what it is now. And one other thing, Patty, just to tighten up on this, uh, for people out there that, you know, if you're going to make uh, renewals on your insurance, check what's going on because what's happening now from the word I got from my broker was that if you're involved in a car accident, and uh, you're going up for renewal, basically you're put down as being at fault for, for that accident until you can get a letter from motor vehicle registration and bring it into your insurance showing otherwise. So now you got to get another lineup and get a letter with, with, when before you didn't have to. So this is just one big, uh, I don't know what you want to call it anymore. He calls it insurance, but I just call it a joke because it, it's not protecting me. This is my own insurance company. I pay almost $7,000 a year for it to protect me, and they're the ones that gouge me. So I don't know where the protection is there. Yeah, no fault is a bit of a misleading term anyway, isn't it? Because ultimately someone is held responsible. It's somebody's yeah, exactly. fault every time. Well, basically, it is, just Your own insurance company does your settlement, and then they goes and collects off the other person. They were better off leaving it the other way. This way, the insurance companies didn't have as much control over it. Everybody had a fair chance. Sure, in some regard. There's also the pro- a problem with not having no fault in place, though, is also you can indeed experience some pretty hefty legal bills and time-consuming court proceedings that used to be the feature of getting to the brass tax on some of these issues. No fault kind of removes some of that in some circumstances. But, and you know, it's interesting. My father was an adjuster. He had an adjusting company. So I heard a lot about insurance growing up. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, Patty. Uh, everything that was said to me by the case manager up in Nova Scotia, everything was come out of my pocket. So I don't know how that's uh, better. Right now, I've got to pay for my own appraiser. And then I've got to get, she's going to get another, uh, and then she gave me a list of guidelines for this appraising company that they got to be in order to be an approved appraiser for the insurance. So really, uh, they're really just trying to nickel and dime it down so that you basically go with what they're doing. They're trying to make it hard for you to make a claim. And I'm not, I'm not even asking for anything special or nothing like that. I'm just asking for a fair appraisal. That was it. And I've gotten flicked over the coals. And my son, if I could have been drowned, he would have done this. That's how bad this has gotten. Even my own brokers can't even get a hold of her because she won't answer the phone to him up there. 
That's all. That's all nuts. This has gotten. You made, and I do have to go, but a quick reference to BC. Isn't there a pretty serious issue with cost of insurance in British Columbia? No, it's not. Actually, it's actually lower. Actually, and lower it, than where? Here, <laughs> I mean, uh, every, like trooping on. I'd say you'll probably see something coming out about this soon uh, in the near future, and you'll see uh, all the cost differences of how much money uh, that could be made if the government had their own uh, province-ran insurance. Jeez, we'd be making money. You look at how much money the insurance companies are making, and you look at how much money uh, people are paying. You'd be paying half the money, and at the same time, you'd be making money as province-wise. And you can't say that's not true. Go check it out and ask I will. Uh, politicians for the numbers. If you do want to check it out, make a story of it, uh, Patty, because I'll tell you right now, I think it's in the works. Well, ICBC, I'm going to have to do more reading because I remember doing some uh, reading about how the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia works. And for the longest time, there was a reputation for it being expensive. And interestingly, many people, and I think including you, Nick, don't trust the government to run a lot of things. And now we want them to run the insurance landscape. And you can buy from a private insur- insurance company in BC, too. You don't have to use ICBC. Um, anyway, I appreciate your time, and I'm sorry that you're going through the hoops that you are. Yeah, me too, because it's, uh, it really deters you from, uh, you know, dealing with people like this. And uh, I don't know if there's any other alternatives out there. But anyways, you have a good one, Patty. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, so does anyone know more about ICBC? Because it is an interesting case study. Um, I'm not even sure they make money, do they? It's a not-for-profit, number one. So how that money, whether it comes in form of profit one year to the next, how exactly that's utilized by the government, I don't know. But I'm going to have to try to, I guess, go back and read some more updated information because my understanding was, is that ICBC was expensive and not necessarily generating much of anything. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. How are you? Okay. How are you doing? We're going to disagree this morning. Sure. Paddy, I, I got two things to talk about, and it's sports. One is the NHL playoffs. I hate the Florida Panthers. And I tell you why. Why? <laughs> I tell you why. They're after taking an old play by the Montreal Canadiens called the Trap. That's when Montreal is scoring the first period and hang on to that one goal until the game is over. Montreal, so wasn't, much a, Montreal wasn't a trap team. I mean, the real left-wing lock trap team, notably, has been the, the, the New Jersey Devils. They were real trap oh, Okay, you, you, you won't agree with that. That's okay. You're a Montreal fan. Yeah. And Montreal fans are like Christians. They believe that their team rose to the dead. Um, I don't believe that at all. Oh, you got to. Pardon? You have to. No, you don't, because well, I it's don't. It's part of the Catholic, uh, Catholic religion in, in, uh, in We needn't, in, in we needn't be so silly here this morning. <laughs> you know, I, I, Another I don't... thing, <sighs> and I say, they're killing the game. You take a look at the at the series between Toronto and Florida, complete defense. And back in the seventies, when Montreal played the defense, you know what? They started not Montreal, but the league itself started to lose fans. I think that's going to happen here. The second thing I'd like to talk about the 70s, was on morning hold on now, show this morning. Hold on a second. The Montreal Canadiens in the 70s were a defensive team as opposed to the high-flying Canadiens of the 70s? Oh, it must have been before that. But I remember the trap. But the other thing I'd like to talk about this morning is on morning show. Now, I don't know if this happened or not. Morning Joe went nuts this morning about 
his favorite team, the Yankees and the, and the Boston Red Sox. And he talked about the game last night in Toronto. And he said that Buck Martinez, whether he did or didn't, I don't know, insinuated that Aaron Judge was cheating. And he showed the film on, on his show. Aaron Judge was standing at the plate, and his eyes were going left to right, left to right. He was insinuating, or Buck Martinez was insinuating that he was getting, uh, he was getting signs from his bench telling him what was coming in. And right after he started moving his eyes, in comes some sort of a pitch, and he puts down the sky down. And if that's true, and now, now the, I think Toronto will have to come forward with it, if that's true, the man who hit tons of home runs last year could be in trouble. Okay. I don't know if you heard that story this morning, Joe, but it would be interesting to go on the internet and find out. Okay, a couple of things. I don't live and die with uh, Montreal winning or losing. I prefer they win, but I don't cry when they lose. I, I don't get in like that. I just en- I enjoy watching sports. And the business about stealing signs. Like, if it was how the Astros did it, and notably there's asterisks in some people's mind against w- at least one of their World Series titles, if you're using, like, for instance, a camera in the outfield and relaying what you steal from the catcher offering signs to the pitcher, to the dugout, and then to the batter, or there's guys on seconds who are offering they're looking at the catcher stealing signs and giving it some sort of indication to the hitter if you're using technology it's absolutely a cheat and it shouldn't be allowed and it should be persecuted if it's old school sign stealing like even when you're trying to figure out who's going when someone's going to steal if the opposing team can figure out something that they've caught on with with the way that the manager or the bench boss is offering signs that's just part of the game if you're using technology that's a problem if you're looking down at the catcher to try to steal a sign, see whether or not he's calling for the fastball or the curveball or the slider, what have you. Again, a little bit part of the game. So Buck gets carried away like he does with most things. I, I don't mind Buck Martinez, but I don't think Judge is in any real trouble for someone alleging that he stole a sign. Again, if they're using cameras and whatnot, like the Patriots did or the Astros did, problem. If it's just guys trying to figure out what's coming based on whether it be a giveaway in the signs or what have you, I got a real problem with that. Whether or not it's a uh, player like Judge or the Yankees, which I I totally dislike because I am a Jays fan, but I don't think Judge is in much trouble. I think Buck gets carried away. Okay. That's it. Appreciate the time. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> the 70s Canadians defensive team. Not necessarily my uh, understanding of the high flying. Rouge, what are they, red, white, and blue? Anyway, it's too funny. Uh, will I take a break on time here and come back? Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about crab again. But, you know, whether it be the harvesters themselves or the processors, the plant workers, the trucking companies, and other businesses that will be absolutely impacted if there's no money coming in from this year's snow crab fishery, has an impact across the community. Whether or not you're directly or even indirectly involved, it will be a massive issue for many of you. Let's go to Bonavista right after this, talk about the impact in that community. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning again to the Mayor Bonavista. That's John Norman. Mayor Norman, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hello yet again. (laughs) Hello yet again. Yes, we did indeed speak with uh, Mayor Tiller in New West Valley about the implications of this fishery. Still at a standstill now. Some harvesters will choose to go, which will be okay for them and for some plant workers, for some work. But what's the real-life impact in your community? Yeah, 
it, it, it's very difficult, and, and no one in this situation wants to take any sides. But the fact of the matter is people's EI supports are running out or have already run out. And in a community like Bonavista, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of people tied directly to the crab fishery, we're already seeing dozens and dozens of households where the EI supports have now run out. And that's having a noticeable effect. And it's really concerning myself. It's concerning members of council and I think everybody in the community for a lot of reasons, for the immediate obvious reasons right now, this week, this month, and this summer, but the long-term ramifications when you have a sector like this that, like any resource sector, has ups and downs, ebbs and flows. There need to be the supports in place. There need to be EI extensions put in place now uh, that the provincial government can push the federal government for uh, to help support a down year in a very important sector. For me, the one area where any level of government could do something here, because I think we're starting a strange conversation about government getting involved directly in setting price or any subsidies on price. And I understood Mayor Tiller's point last week that, you know, if there was some sort of loan associated to the industry this year, based on the volatility, we never know what's going to come. Last year, of course, banner year. This year, not so much. But for an EI extension for folks who, no fault of their own, they're not involved here. They've had no say in it whatsoever. And so consequently, that plant worker group, you know, if the feds, I think, could and should extend their employment insurance insurance that sounds like the one area where government can do something all the other areas people are talking about i guess would be adjustments or amendments made for the future whether it be outside buyers or you know new rules for how processors are allowed to truck in product those things are going to be for next season or seasons after that the price issue this year i don't know what government does beyond that ei issue Exactly. No, and, and that's where we're sitting. I mean, we've had representatives, uh, Councillor Barry Randall uh, from the Bonavista Council. He's directly involved with the crab fishery uh, himself and other representatives from our area and the fishery sector, the crab sector, have met with MPs, including our own MP, Terrence Rogers. Uh, we haven't seemed to have gotten anywhere just yet, but I would repeat, it, it's no different than any other resource-based sector. If there's a major issue in an agricultural sector, a sub, another subsector of the fishery in another province of the country, there are often supports in place. We've seen it in our own fishery over the years. We need action now. There are skill sets uh, like any sector. There are specific workforces uh, for in, in place for the crab fishery in places like Bonavis and other towns. And if there is a lack of support, we risk losing uh, that labor force. And if we lose that labor force, we're looking at a much bigger problem that goes far beyond this season. How, why do you think we'll lose the labor force? Like, do you think they're leaving your community or leaving the province? Or what exactly do you mean by that? Well, what's going to happen if uh, you, you and your wife work in the crab industry and you have, and you're a plant worker, for example, and you work on the line, you have no income right now, your EI benefits from the last season have run out. What are your choices? You have literally no income. That's what some people are facing. So with no income, there are other sectors perhaps you could work in. There are other places in the country you could work in. I'm not saying that there's a busload of people leaving Bonavista today or any other town. But depending on how long this goes on for, people have to make hard decisions. And we've seen this in resource sectors time and time again. But like most sectors, it has those ebbs and flows, ups and downs. 
And what do we do next year if we lose a part of that workforce this year permanently? and they move on to another sector, they find a more guaranteed secured income, and then we can't fill those roles next year. Yeah, and which is, I guess, well, look, there's been an issue growing and developing in the industry, whether we talk about the average age of farmers, actually average age of the harvesters, average age of the plant workers. There is a reason why uh, the Association for Seafood Producers will tell us that there's a significant number of temporary foreign workers working in some of these crab processing plants, I suppose, because people age out and whether or not it's an attractive option for a younger person, I'll leave that up to individuals, but it doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to be. No, it's it's a major challenge for a lot of towns. Now, Bonavista has been very, very lucky, uh, and uh, our processor, uh, Ocean Choice International, has uh, had annual meetings with the town regularly, and they highlight the workforce in Bonavista and the fact that when they put out calls for new positions, people going into retirement, there there are no vacancies. They have, over the last number of seasons, been able to fill those roles and uh, we're very lucky uh, that in Bonavista, we're seeing younger people enter the workforce in the fishery, on the boats, on the lines, in the processing facility. And that's very encouraging. But again, if you don't have the supports in place, uh, that puts them in a very perilous situation. And perhaps they don't want to remain in this sector. And those 20 and 30-somethings that have entered the sector in recent years may have second thoughts now. And, and that does concern me. Yeah, I mean, I think people are waiting with bated breath. Actually, let me take that back because by the look of it, the jury is in for some individual harvesters. Hopefully there won't be the type of ramifications for going to fish for the crab at 220 that we've been seeing and reading on some of the online sites where people post their opinions on this stuff. But mm-hmm. some figure that they can make a go of it. And if they can, then fair enough, go get it. But I'm a little bit worried, slightly worried that it might see some emotional reaction which could make this potentially dangerous for someone. I, nobody wants that to happen, of course. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Norman. Anything else quickly before we say goodbye? No, I would just uh, reiterate that uh, communities across this island uh, and across the province need the support now, and I'm uh, really hoping that the federal government is listening. Appreciate the time, sir. Thank you again. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Bonavista Mayor John Norman. Uh, let's go line number two. Knowing that Newfoundland Newfoundland Labrador has the highest rate of cancer amongst all Canadian provinces, some research being done at Memorial University to talk about cancer lived experiences. Join us on line number two is the Professor of Graduate Program Coordinator, Human Genetics and Genomics. That's Dr. Sevtap Savas. Doctor, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to do it. So let's get to some of the highlights or the major takeaways in the study. Okay, so we are uh, starting a new study about the lived experiences of cancer patients in our province. So some of the audience may remember that a few years back we actually conducted a study about social stigmatization and discrimination of cancer patients. So our participants uh, told us um, a number of different experiences and some of them really struck with us and we said hey we should really get into the depth of these experiences so this is why we designed this second study and we started recruitment right now so what is our aim so it's based on a previous study where you know the um cancer patients uh, from newfoundland and labrador uh, inspired us uh, but what are our aims in this um, new study is that we really want to have in detailed knowledge about uh, how social experiences and workplace experiences of individuals diagnosed with cancer in this province uh, were. 
So in other words, we want to know whether it was great, it was uh, good, it was positive, it was neutral, or there were uh, really uh, unnecessary experiences that uh, caused further burden to the cancer-affected individuals. This yeah. question is based on, out of ignorance. How do you take the data and the stories being told by people with lived experience because I could have one form of cancer that's more treatable or manageable. I might have a support network at home. I may have a relationship with my oncologist or family practitioner or what have you. So everyone will be absolutely different. How it impacts their sleep and their mood and their emotions. So how do you incorporate all of those different tangents to come up with uh, thumbs up, thumbs down for public policy or access to support or what have you? You should be a scientist, uh, Paddy. I think this is a great question, and it really is at the heart of all the scientific inquiries we do have. So for our case, it will be a little bit different because we want to have a group discussions, and we have very specific uh, topics to talk about. Uh, and certainly the factors you mentioned, like the social support, my oncologist, you know, my, my workplace policies, et cetera, may be all affecting our uh, social and workplace experiences, but we really want to know what they experience, and this may later give us a certain information to act on. And I also want to say that we have thought about a couple of variabilities, and that's why we are focusing on um, uh, different uh, groups of uh, participants. For example, we believe that there is a regional difference in cancer experience. This may be exacerbated by, you know, access to health care. For example, in uh, Labrador and Grenfell region, it may be different than uh, St. John's. Um, or, you know, Avalon region. And we also want to know that, and this is again based on our previous study, that uh, individuals who are diagnosed with cancer early in their lifetime, like before four to five, they actually have uh, a little bit more severe, not severe, but a little bit more negative experiences in their social and or workplace experiences. So we are going to focus on those uh, groups as well. And our... Um, the next variable to that or the factor that we are really interested in is how is the experiences of um, members of the 2S LGBTQIA plus community because we do believe that they do they may have different experiences and this may be, you know, again factored in the, their sexual identity and gender identity. So your question is great. We can't answer all of these questions, but we are focusing on certain uh, factors and we hope to get in-depth um, um, participant uh, input considering uh, these points and hopefully from there we will move on. But one thing that we really see is that, you know, um, and we have seen it in the previous study as well, that there, there, these experiences vary a lot. And we didn't see, for example, any association with, the, uh, for example, sex or gender, uh, but we did see some uh, link to age of diagnosis. So, um, so these are the clues that we are following, and we hope to create more clues, and then we will move from there. Uh, in addition to individual stories, do you incorporate umbrella organizations like, for instance, YAC, Young Adult Cancer Canada, who yeah. would be able to identify gaps in support services or otherwise? Do you bring in those representative groups as well as individuals? Right. So we do invite a number of different organizations. Our uh, invitation uh, emails have been sent last week. So YAC is one of them. Of course, certainly there are other cancer support organizations and foundation, for example, in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we have reached out to um, main organizations. 
uh, including you know the childhood cancer organizations. But anyone anyone who is interested in uh, participating in this study, they can contact us, and we will be happy to see whether they are eligible and if they are eligible, how they can uh, contribute to this study. Do you splinter out financial pressures? Because when you mention rural versus urban, it'd be one thing for me living in the east end of St. John's to uh, deal with it in a certain financial position as opposed to try to find a spot at Ronald McDonald House or try to find a spot at Daffodil Place or stay with friends or get an apartment or an Airbnb. Do you have to splinter that out to have a real reflection of the different impacts? Right. So this may come up uh, during the uh, discussion, um, group discussion, that uh, this is one of the things that we expect to come. And we know, for example, other financial consequences of cancer, cancer treatment, and living away from St. John's or, or where the you know, main cancer treatment centers are. So we do expect this kind of points to come during the discussion, but we will have to see and uh, how that works uh, during the discussion session. Last one before I let you go. So again, I mentioned off the top, it'd be different based on the level of support you have whether it be family community your company or what have you inside of that world is it only the people who have lived experience as the cancer patient or is it lived experience as someone supporting a cancer patient also involved Patty, you, you should you should really pursue an honorary degree in science because your your questions are so awesome so um this study focuses on the lived experiences of individuals with a history of cancer or they are individual diagnosed with uh, cancer. So we are looking, we are, our target group is uh, cancer patients or survivors, in other words. The other group that you mentioned, cancer, uh, you know, family members or caregivers, of course they are also affected by the consequences of a cancer diagnosis. However, this study is not focusing on them just yet. What do people need to do if they'd like to participate in this study? Yes. Uh, thank you. So they can contact us. Uh, we have a very enthusiastic uh, PhD student who is also a nurse practitioner working on this project. She can be reached at, um, I'm going to give the phone number first, 709-864-4618. I will repeat, 709-864-6, sorry, 864 or her uh, email address is krista.king.man.ca, krista.king.man.ca. So they interested individuals can contact Krista, and we will take it from there. I appreciate your time this morning, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. It's Dr. Septap Savas. She's a researcher in the world of uh, biomedical service sciences at Memorial University, human genetics and genomics. It is truly remarkable, the kind of work that goes on regarding genetics and genomics here, because we have a captive audience and a very interesting uh, population and countries of origin for the vast majority of people here in the province. Some of the work they've done here has been groundbreaking international coverage, sort of uh, extraordinary work at the Department of Biomedical Sciences. Cool stuff. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Top shelf today. How are you doing? Good, sir. Good. Patty, just calling regarding the doctor issue in the Trapassi and surrounding area. Uh, I asked the minister uh, last week, uh, you know, regarding the doctor in the area, and, uh, you know, he had uh, come out and said that, uh, you know, they're no longer 
Health Authority went up and indicated, uh, you know, based on staffing, there's no need to put a salary position doctor in the area. So it seems like he's given up on getting a doctor in the area of Jurassic. You know, he, he did offer to say, well, there's a fee for service there. I mean, we do have two nurse practitioners that are in the area two days a week, and then they're in Fairland as well. But, you know, we do have people, and I get calls every day or just about every day that people are leaving to go to St. John's, go to CBS, that the doctor that was originally in Trapassi and he didn't offer the position to, she's in CBS practicing, and she was interested in going up there, but they can't seem to make it happen and, and, and make it go. So what has the doctor told us about when the contract came up and the decision was made to move into CBS? Was there an extension offered? Was there a demand from the doctor about a change in the uh, requirements? Because that's some of the stories we've heard, for instance, out in Fogo, Bell Island, and other places where they had a doctor willing to work, but in a different way with a different schedule and the whole so-called work-life balance. So what changed? Well, you know, she was working there a couple of days. They were working, I think the doctors in the area were working two days every two weeks. They were sort of filling them in, putting the area back in regards to organizing the area uh, when the former doctor retired. And they went up there for six months or three years. So she uh, see it by herself. She was interested in going there. They didn't offer her a job. You know, after being there for that period of time, you know, when the job came up, I could see it has to go back to be advertised to accept the doctor. But seeing there's no doctors around, she was willing to go up there and they weren't willing to hire her you know they were willing, they just weren't willing to do it and you know based in between I'm not going to speak for the doctor but you know going back and forth you know they just didn't give her an interview to to go and, and figure out you know what the issues were or make a counter proposal they haven't done that they haven't done their due diligence on this at all the government has got to get more in tune with this in these rural areas and with somebody that's interested in going there was the doctor working in their own clinic or was it in uh, another healthcare setting with public health or otherwise? What was the setup? I think in her own clinic and you know the offer being there for her I mean if they don't give her this opportunity to go up there she is interested what's to say that she won't leave and go to Doom Brunswick if somebody else offers her, uh, offers her another position up there? Now she's gone out of the system altogether so she's interested in going up there but they don't see it uh, you know don't see it that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, things are going to change, and a lot of people will not like to hear that, but there's a couple things that have to change. I mean, healthcare, the system, the human resources component, there hasn't been any adjustment made in the human resources issue since the early 90s, and the overall structure of the system hasn't changed in decades, and consequently, it's the 11th hour, or we already passed the 11th hour, because something's not working. So whether it be, here's where I think it, we're headed. So... When the province is so keenly focused on these collaborative care clinics, and in concept, they sound like they make a lot of sense to me, because not every ailment requires seeing an MD. But if they're talking about uh, 35 to be of these clinics around the province, you're going to see more and more emergency rooms, all of a sudden are urgent care clinics. You're going to see more and more clinics that might be in one or smaller community with a next larger center having a collaborative care, care clinic. That really feels like where we're going. Oh, there's no question. Penny, maybe a blended model might work, but, I mean, they do have to speak and negotiate that. I mean, if, you know, they're going to get a small salary, then with a fee-for-service included, well, maybe that's something they can look at. But to not negotiate back and forth and, and just say, well, we're not going to put a salary position. She was looking for a rural retention bonus. Maybe. Who knows? But, I mean, they're pitting these communities against each other. So there's a doctor in Stephenville or a doctor in Harbour Britain. They're going to offer $100,000 to go somewhere else. Well, that's what's stopping them from going to another community to get $100,000? 
you know, that that they're just pitting these communities against each other to get doctors there, and it just doesn't seem, you know, I, I don't know where to go with it, but, I mean, let's talk. I thought last year when I spoke in the House of Assembly, I thought for sure they could get this done and something that would help our area for sure. And, you know, it was 11 months later, and it's still not done. You know, and if, if they don't believe that that's happening, then the people at Trapassi, they're letting me know, and the people in the region are letting me know, you know, they need doctors in the area, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be people calling in about that for sure. Yeah, I can't remember now. There's four different communities that were involved in that rural doctor uh, incentive, the $200,000. Bonavista, New West Valley, and I can't remember the other two. Maybe Burgio or somewhere like that. Cause, I mean, or maybe it was Harbor Breton, actually, now that I think of it. Because you're not wrong. The issue regarding these incentives and targeted for certain parts of the province, I think falls very much in line with what we've seen, whether it be provinces pitted against each other or communities pitted against each other, the province in some form or fashion picking winners and losers with these types of bonuses. I know what they're trying to achieve, but again, if a doctor in Trapassi, whether or not the government offers them a contract or not, says, you know what, for instance, well, I'm a single man or woman. I've got my degree. I've got the experience. Another $200,000 go to Bonavista. That's a pretty beautiful community. Off I go. So as much as they're trying... They are playing an active role in a bit of an unlevel playing field when we talk about one community and they're, you know, even bring into the municipalities who are talking about offering incentives, cash or service lots or what have you. So the competitive level is a global issue, but we should do whatever we can to reduce the competition domestically. Absolutely, Patty. And, you know, and then you throw in the ambulance issue that we have in the Surprise region and, and even the in Cape Royal and sort of got rectified a, a bit, but the minister came out and said a rapid response team that had to be two months ago. Have haven't heard anything on it yet. That was a big announcement they made. I know they're working on it. Well, let us know how it's going to work. And the ambulance issue in Trapassi is the same thing. So now we got one ambulance. They they said they were pulling their services in July. They notified the towns in the area. Okay, what's the plan come July? The worry is on the people. You know, they're calling me and asking me. I don't know. They haven't let us know. So it's time for this government to let us know what their plan is regarding the ambulance and what they're planning on doing for the for the rural regions for their ambulance service. I was confused with the Trapassi issue. Uh, and what remains to be seen what happens to the Smiths uh, court challenge. I'm really curious to see how that plays out. Because with fewers in Trapassi, you know, Bob Fewer said they were pulling out in six months, and the government says that they'll put an option in place. And then Fewer said until that option is, or alternative is put in place that he would remain there, and then consequently that didn't happen. So it's the folks, the not knowing is the biggest part of the anxiety. It just is. It, even if no it's, question, yeah, I mean, if, no even if you question. get an answer that you don't want, at least you know, as exactly. opposed to the endless yeah, Exactly, hope. yeah. And that's the worry. You know, people call and say, well, what's the plan for the ambulance in July? You know, and that's a concern. That's a big concern. And then you know, we got no doctors, and now there's no ambulance to take us here. There's so, <laughs> a big concern for the people in my district, I can tell you that. Well, I don't imagine we're going to see any move on the ambulance issue until the consultant uh, does their work and uh, supplies some sort of report to government, because it's one thing to make news on Budget Day. Well, that was the only thing that made, really made any news, was the consolidating of some 60 contracts with a couple of exep- exceptions. But then to know that a consultant is brought in, which is going to be not only a costly exercise, but it's probably going to be that no other work is done until that's completed. 
you're right. And, and again, it's, it's back to the people and their worry about, you know, what's going to happen to them in their area. So, you know, I do appreciate the time to be able to get on and bring this up for the district. And, uh, you know, it's something that's very important for the people in the Jirpassi region. It's not only Jirpassi, it's Portugal Cove South, it's St. Shots. And it goes down as far as Fairland for the doctors where they were serving in the, the area. So, sure. thank you, Betty. Appreciate the time. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Loyola Driscoll is the PC member for Fairland. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm not. I'm not privy to any more information than any of you are. But with that ambulance issue, you know, to tell me that we're amalgamating the ground and air dispatch, all right, that's fine. And then to know that there's going to be some consolidation inside the public envelope, which I think many people are pleased with government moving in that direction. But how long is it going to take for the consultant to do the work? How long after the report is in hand or the recommendations are in hand are we going to see some real shift take place? Because... Again, you know, you figure that companies and governments would figure this out sooner than later. When people don't know, their mind goes down worst-case scenario. Even if it's a question that you know the person posing it is not going to like the answer, it's better to offer that answer and remove the anxiety of the gray, the unknowns, I wonder ifs, because that's not helping either. All right, today's a good day to get on the show. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial... 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Joe, you're on the air. Hi, Joe. Line four. Hello. Hello there. Oh, this is Gerald. Oh, Gerald, pardon me, sir. I got Joe on my screen. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, Gerald Guy here in Arnold's Cove. Uh, uh, I've called you before. I'm a bus driver at a Tricentia Academy. Yes, sir. Uh, just a couple of reminders and uh, out to the motoring public. Uh, on my route today on the TCH, east of Bull Arm, west of the Arnold's Cove overpass, there's a washout with no signage up. In that area, like the motoring traffic, to be very careful. It's uh, as you merge from that lane, it could be undermined, washed out. So the motoring public should be careful there. Uh, there's no signage up making you aware of that. And just east of uh, Bull Arm, there's a, a dip in the highway that's been there for a long time. And motors should slow down pretty much in the Bull Arm area. There, there's been hydroplaning there in the past, so please slow down and be careful. Paddy, just uh, being a bus driver uh, at a Tricentia in Arnold's Cove, I do make one stop on the main road in Arnold's Cove, and over the past two weeks, I've had two drivers pass through with my lights flashing, my arms out, why I do not know why anyone would be in such a hurry to bypass a school bus whether you're off loading or you're picking up it's just not right and there was one driver that I guess was so impatient even though the students had disembarked from the bus did not wait for my arms or my lights to go out they just advanced that is not right. Now, I know those people personally, so I haven't taken it any further. But I'd asked in the town and surrounding area, drivers, please 
There's four buses out of Choice NJ Academy in the Arnold's Cove area. When those buses are coming to a stop or they are stopped, be aware. Come to a stop. If not, you are carrying a license plate. There's a number. We will have to do what is very necessary to do and put in a report. I ask of you to abide by that rule and please, on behalf of all drivers, bus drivers, please be aware that students are either going on or off those buses and they are our future. So please adhere to the rules. Thank you for taking my call and thanks for listening, Paddy. Appreciate the time, Gerald. Stay in touch. Okay, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I mean, I see it happen too, right? And there's this one lady, I believe she's in Mount Pearl, every now and then sends me a video that she takes from her living room window about exactly that. People just willing to pass the bus, put the stop sign put out and the flashing lights on. I mean, can you just imagine being the person who knocks down, hurts or kills a kid got a, who just got off a school bus? It's just another example of the aggressive nature of far too many people driving, certainly around this part of the province. I don't know what it's like where you live, but around here it's madness, which is why I think the province is on the right track on one thing, and that's a pilot program with speed cameras, and it might indeed include cameras on buses to capture exactly that. The fine should be exorbitant, and I just can't for the life of me understand why people are willing to potentially hit, hurt, kill a child getting off school bus. Oh, boy. Let's go to line number one. Uh, Tom, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to double down on what you're saying there, speed cameras and uh, cameras on buses. I mean, you know, it shouldn't be a lottery whether you get a ticket or not when you're when you're endangering the life of yourself and other people. Yeah, I, I, I've never understood it, but uh, again, no sense bleating on about it, even though I, I think it's important to put it out there every now and then, whether it be that issue, because people are getting hurt and killed, and we talk about, we had a conversation or a couple today about insurance, there is a reason why. We're all in this one actuarial pool across Atlantic Canada, and so the folks who are driving up my rates, even though I haven't had a ticket or an accident in years, they're the people causing us all, all a little bit of pain, so this helpful reminder is not just about safety, it's also about money yeah and also you know getting to the climate if uh people are racing around they're producing way more uh it's not only costing them more money obviously in gas and but now that inflation has been shown in canada have bumped back up a little bit um you know you can save money you can reduce your carbon footprint by keeping the foot off the the gas pedal not being so heavy on it yeah didn't i read this morning though that the the consensus is inflation dropped again in april and looking at sometime in the fall be around three percent no they just released the numbers it went up just came out today yeah just convey this this morning yeah i just it was an opinion piece i read overnight so i hadn't seen the numbers yet this morning no just just came out it's up it's up uh, 4.4 percent they were hoping it was going to be a little lower but it's it's going back up again yikes so uh i just want to continue the message of trying to ask people to bring their own coffee and teacups to the local places. Pretty well everybody takes a, will refill your coffee and teacup with the exception of McDonald's that I know of, and you'll save money and you'll get more coffee or tea and you'll, uh, it'll be safer. And you're going to reduce what's get thrown in the garbage. 
I also want to extend that to sports teams. I see a lot of sports teams and the parents and the coaches show up and, you know, they want to hydrate the kids and they show up with a couple of cases of water. But, you know, we can do better than that. Let's let's send our kids to whatever we're doing, whether it's school or to hockey or wherever, with a refillable water bottle full full of water that came out of the tap. It all makes a difference, and especially when we send that message right across our community, then the children become, they're thinking about it, the parents are thinking about it, and it all makes a difference. You also hit on composting. Um, a lot of the municipalities in the province have programs in partnership with the uh, MMSB, Multi-Material Stewardship Board, uh, to get subsidized those above-ground uh, tumbler bins, which, which don't which don't touch the ground. Um yeah, so you can you can take advantage of that and uh, get yourself a composter, and at the same time make your difference. Every bit of organic that goes in the landfill um, creates methane, and methane is really much stronger uh, greenhouse gas than. Uh, yeah, and on that front, again, you can be in or out of what Tom is saying, but if we are talking about diversion from landfills, whether it be Robin Hood Bay or elsewhere, they have a life expectancy. So diversion just makes a lot of sense because even if you think that this is all poppycock, at some point paying for the creation of a new landfill is something that I'm sure you would be concerned with as a property taxpayer, whether it be living in the city of St. John's or elsewhere, because at some point Robin Hood Bay will run out of usefulness. And everything we throw away gets transported there, which then reflects in all our tax bills, too. So, you know, and again, those vehicles driving back and forth, greater carbon footprint. So, I mean, I think it's I think I think it's time for us all to, you know, to however we want to coach it. And like you just said, whether it's saving money, I, I don't really doesn't really I don't really care why people reduce. We focus too much on recycling and the reducing and reusing needs to be our focus. I just on that front before we go, it's another reason why I'm not so sure how the waste management model in the province makes any sense. A couple of things. Not only are we trucking garbage all over God's creation, we also took away for some communities that had an industrial dump site, some of the revenue streams. So does it really make sense what we're doing from the outside looking in? Like my garbage uh, issue didn't change, right? I put it out on the curb. In fact, today's garbage day for me. And a big green truck comes by and picks it up. But for other communities that lost either revenue or see their garbage go into a vehicle trucking it down the highway, not sure it makes as much sense as people. some people think it does. Well, not only did they lose revenue, but now they're taking the money of their residents and paying the city of St. John's or, where, or whatever community has that landfill for their dumping fees. So, you know, yesterday I, I came in contact with two different individuals. One was from Clarenville and one was just a guy who knocked on my window and asked for a ride. I was on Merrimeter Road and I drove him to Froud Avenue. And both those people, I was driving, I just got a new electric van, a 2023 Ford Transit. And uh, both of them commented on it and both of them went right to climate change. There was no doubt in their mind. And these were two totally socioeconomically different individuals. And they both asked the same question. Why don't our leaders... Uh, inform us like what why are you telling me things i didn't know and uh and you know i said to them i said because we elect people who tell us what we want to hear and they're no different than we are and 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 unfortunately they rely our elected officials rely on the bureaucracy to kind of educate them and whatever else and they're again just normal newfoundlanders and labradorians and you know i just call on people to try and divert a little bit of the time that we spend being distracted on our devices and maybe just spend a little bit of time and, and you don't have to get stressed about it. You know, you just, I find that when I'm doing something to make a difference, it reduces my stress. It doesn't make me more stressed. So get a little, be a little bit more educated and, 
and then try and make these small measures within your homes, within your businesses, and if you work for government, within government. And I think it will. I know it'll make a difference. I'm seeing it in my business and my family, and and I and I do see it across the province. There is a change happening, but I believe we can go a lot faster. You know, when you look at our brothers and sisters in Alberta, you know, when the premier says not only are we going to send people to help you fight these fires, we're going to be there to help you rebuild. I mean, that's like something we say to places that are in a war. Um, you know, we're going to help you rebuild when it's all said and done. And you know, unfortunately, they just came out and said that the global water temperatures are 0.5 degrees higher than they've ever been before. And that was in a La Nina period, which is a period when the waters are cooler. And now we're expected to go into an El Nino, which where the water temperatures will go up. Uh, and also global temperatures might go up 0.2 degrees. So this year, going into 2024, um, we may tip that 1.5 degree global warming um, number. And with at that magic number, you know, that's when storms get stronger and um, droughts get worse and floods get worse. And, and so, you know, but, but all of us on an individual level can make a difference. And, you know, we all tell ourselves fairy tales. And like one of the biggest ones I hear is, well, the airplane or the cruise ship's going to leave whether or not I'm on it or not. And it makes us feel a little bit better. But the reality is COVID showed us that's not true. Cruise ships were tied up and airplanes were parked and routes were stopped. So, you know, we got to start telling ourselves uh, the truth and look ourselves in the mirror and, and ask ourselves what's the consequences of my actions today and uh, my family and my business's actions. So calling everybody to, to lean in and, and, and be part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. Okay. So, I mean, people might, there's different reasons why people will leave where they are living for work or for pleasure or what have you. Like I'm going to Toronto uh, this summer and I'm not supposed to feel bad about that in my time. Well, you know what? Here's how I look at it. Um, everybody is responsible for their carbon footprint, and we all know we have to reduce, reduce it. So, you know, we can take, make different choices. Um, and it's, it's a difficult conversation. I have it with my family, with my friends. Um, I don't know how it all works out if individuals aren't prepared to make different choices. And should you feel bad? I mean, I don't know. Should we all feel bad about our carbon footprint as it exists? I mean, I think we kind of should. Um, that's not, I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. I mean, I'm trying to make different choices. For example, if, if I wanted to go to Heathrow, if I fly through Halifax and go to Heathrow versus Toronto, it, it's actually 30% less uh, of a carbon impact. So that's like a small example, but that makes a big difference. Um, and maybe there's, you know, it, couldn't you fly to a certain point to get on a train? And then, you know, I just, I think you got to kind of keep scaling it back. Uh, obviously, if you have to fly to work, it's a totally different conversation. Um, but do I need a big pickup truck or do I need a, a big side-by-side? Like, like all these decisions all have long-term consequences. And it's, it's very difficult. It's very awkward, like many of the tough conversations in life. But I guess the real question is needs versus wants. And I wouldn't want anybody to feel bad necessarily, but I think we all need to be thinking about it. And like I say, we just these fairy tales we tell ourselves, like as the government takes 50 or 60 people to one part of the world or another to you know, go to a hydrogen conference, which is supposed to reduce greenhouse gases. I understand the importance of being there in person. These are difficult decisions. But does everything get put through a lens of what is the consequence of this decision? I think if everything is and then you, try, you weigh it out, do you go to Toronto twice in a year? Well, maybe not. But if you cut it in half, you just cut your carbon footprint from travel in half. And that's a big difference. Well, I think that's one of the fair arguments people make about the the blowhard uh, congregation at Davos with their private jets. Uh, I agree. Uh, you want to say something about hydro and El Hydro before we go? 
you know, it's a bigger conversation. I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I can really do it justice in such a short period of time. But I mean, I just, I just want to, I'll put this out there, just, sim, just on a simple level. In the mid two thousand, early two thousand, two thousand six, two thousand eight, hydro and Newfoundland Power are working together to focus on demand minimization. So, so you know, can we bring down demand? Can we bring down? Can we make our buildings and our houses more efficient? Different heating sources, different lighting, and all that stuff. And then along came uh, a certain government, and we decided to uh, build this big legacy project. And uh, then all of a sudden, it was all about supply. And you still hear Jennifer Williams. Now you're hearing Jennifer Williams talking about supply, supply, supply. And although we we have these programs to reduce demand, in theory, we're not talking about it. You know, she's talking about how much all this extra supply we need. A lot of it for stuff like data centers, centers of day. Well, our electricity is too expensive for that anyway. I don't know why we're even talking about that. Well, it depends how much they sell it for. I mean, that's a well, right. But if we're building if we're building hydroelectric sites that have a 25 cent per kilowatt hour cost, for example, like Muskrat Falls, it doesn't make any sense. Nobody wants to buy 25 cent uh, power when they can get that way cheaper anywhere else pretty well in North America. Well, anywhere else in North America. And you're right. It's probably a larger issue that needs more time uh, the next time. I appreciate this time. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, In the most recent Liberal Policy Convention, there was a bunch of things adopted. I think some 24 made it through without debate, voted on by the members. And one of them is put forward about making sure that Five Wing Goose Bay becomes a full-time search and rescue base. Last seen on September, I'll make sure I get the date right. Mark Russell and Joy Jenkins, last seen on September the uh, 17th of 2021 aboard the Island Lady, and they were lost. Some of that absolutely been chalked up to how hard it is to get any search and rescue capacity at sea off the coast of Labrador. Jeanette Russell joins us after this talk away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Jeanette Russell. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Mother's Day was a rough day, but, you know, as all those types of anniversaries typically are when you're on a grief journey. I can only imagine. And just for context, in case someone didn't hear me going to the break, uh, Jeanette Russell is the mother of uh, Mark Russell. He and Joey Jenkins were best buddies, and they fished together on the Island Lady, and they were lost, last seen anyway, on September 17th of twenty. 21. So what has changed since? I guess let's start with the Liberal Policy Convention. Now, we know there's a long way between a policy convention and a policy being adopted and then put into practice in real life with government legislation and or funding. So what do you make of what you heard? You know, it it holds a lot of weight when the party that's currently in government, when their national convention uh, takes this resolution to hopefully to mandate it, you know, so it holds a lot of weight in terms of future movement. It'll put a lot of pressure when your own party uh, says, "Okay, we've adopted this resolution to upgrade Five Wing Goose Bay to a primary search and rescue unit. And when you're the governing government of the day, you know, it, it certainly your your party would inform your governing. So we're hoping that this is going to lead through to action. So, you know, uh, we're trying to come at government from a lot of different directions to see that this is going to become a reality. So remind the folks exactly what was proposed. So the proposal was to upgrade currently right now Five Wing Goose Bay uh, Uh, military base is a secondary search and rescue unit. So the resolution was to upgrade it to a primary search and rescue unit. 
which and I mean we spoke with Merv Wiseman about it last week. So we know that would include a Cormorant helicopter and a full time staff. No understanding or I was unable to understand whether or not they actually included uh, fixed wing aircraft and or the just even the simple addition of a fast rescue craft, which there isn't even any Labrador, which is truly mind boggling. In your own circumstance, and I hate to bring you down this path, remind folks of how these search unfolded and where the resources came from because there's a lot to this. Yeah, initially resources uh, were dispatched from Gander in Newfoundland and from Greenwood, Nova Scotia. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a considerable time lag. You know, you're looking at two to three hours before those assets even reach the search area. Uh, and then when you get weather conditions, so you know, local assets in Labrador just aren't equipped to be able to uh, engage in in certain uh, weather conditions, and specifically, they're not permitted or not able to go over water. So when you have a, a jurisdiction the size of Labrador with the massive coastline that we have, and you have assets in that region that can't fly over water, you know, your hands are tied when it comes to marine search and rescue. A hundred percent. I want to hit the news on time. I know Dave gave you the heads up that we might put you on hold. So I'm going to do exactly that, Jeanette, and then we'll come back and pick up the conversation. Certainly. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so Jeanette is on hold, and her voice is important here. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, pick up our chat with Jeanette, and then uh, lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Back to the show. Let's rejoin Jeanette Russell on line number four. Jeanette, you're back on the air. I'm back. Okay, so I, I'm doing this with not a purpose to bring you back down a sad path, but just when we have a human story involved, as opposed to simply saying search and rescue, but when there's a human story to be told, such as the loss of uh, your son and Joey, what does it mean for the community? And then we'll get into you and your family. Okay. Uh, you know, like, like you say, it, it, it is hard to, to go back because, you know, when you lose someone at sea, it's, and it's something you're always reliving. There, there's no closure in our experience, and it's the same for our communities. Uh, the south coast of, Lab of Labrador will never be the same following the last of the island lady. I mean, it, it's it, it's kind of one of those pivotal moments that everyone will be will remember because you know it just changes the fabric of your community completely. It, it changes your life completely, uh, and and it it highlighted so clearly the deficits and everything that's wrong with our search and rescue provisions in Labrador. You know, uh, our situation in Labrador is that everything has to come from outside. And, you know, uh, my husband and I just recently met with the Canadian Coast Guard. And one thing they showed us, you know, we asked, you know, to show, you know, how are the zones, the search and rescue zones in the province divided? And you look at all of Labrador is one search and rescue zone. And I realize, yes, there is less marine traffic probably as, say, the Avalon Peninsula zone, but... You know, you still have people in small vessels that are in these zones with very few resources at their immediate disposal when it comes to a crisis incident. 
And of course, the Cormorant and crew, or a fixed wing aircraft and crew, could not only be utilized at sea, but of course, we talk about the enormity of the landmass of Labrador. You could put the entire United Kingdom in Labrador and have lots of room left over. So. People sometimes don't realize just how massive the, the ground, the land is of Labrador. And Jeanette, on a personal note, I mean, have you, do you use support groups or families or do you simply not try to try not to think about it? Or how has this path been for you and how do you try to navigate it? Uh, family, I, I, I did do initially in the first year, I did do some uh, individual counseling therapy. Um, and now it's more family and community supports. And, you know, I have a, a tremendous network of friends and family who are, are there for me on a consistent basis. Uh, and, it, it, you know, you're just slugging through it. You know, you're, you're in the mud every day and it is what it is. And you just got to keep slugging, uh, you know, this, you know, this issue of improving search and rescue for Labrador is giving me a purpose right now. Uh, there are times it does come at a cost. You know, it is a heavy burden sometimes. There, you know, um, like I know, for instance, uh, uh, you know, VOCM was calling me yesterday, wanting me. To, I couldn't do an interview yesterday. We're right on the heels of Mother Day. I couldn't even face it yesterday. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it does come at a cost, but it's important work. And you know, I, I remember specifically and so clear in my mind following the Burton Winters tragedy, thinking, sitting in my home with my children were younger at the time and just thinking like somebody needs to do something about that and if the people who are directly affected by these disasters don't get involved and force government to make changes everyone else is busy you know you know we've got tremendous support from our federal representatives and our provincial representatives but they're responsible for a lot of different issues and a lot of different files this is my only file so this is the hill i'm prepared to die on to see that this change is made right uh mha uh lisa dempster is working on an upcoming uh, meeting with the minister of national defense uh it may be later this month early june which i will also attend and you know we're just keep pushing from multiple directions to see that something is done differently in labrador to protect the lives of all labradorians this is not going to change anything for mark and joey but it could change something for everyone else in labrador and it, it and it's desperately needed i mean you know it it wasn't until my family experienced our tragedy that you realize how exposed you really are in Labrador and how unsafe we really are. And historically, Labradorians have always relied on each other when we need help. And it's time that our federal government stepped up and realized, you know, there are gaps in the service that they are providing that need to be, you know, uh, fixed. You know, it, it just needs, the system needs to be, uh, more adequately prepared you know even when you consider the arctic you know you know our uh, disasters in the subarctic and the arctic still rely on the same resources search and rescue resources that we rely on in labrador so they those resources coming from gander and greenwood nova scotia to go to the arctic if you had an intermediary primary search and rescue in in Goose Bay, that will benefit the Arctic as well. So it's not just about Labrador, it's about the Arctic and the subarctic, you know? So 
uh, last summer when the Minister of National Defense was in uh, Goose Bay for a visit at the Five Wing Goose Bay, she, you know, she told the media that, you know, the secondary search and rescue unit in Labrador is currently sufficient to meet the needs of Labrador. And, you know, the first thing I'm going to say to her when I, in my meeting, is like, it is not. It was not sufficient for my family. It was not sufficient for the Jenkins family. It's not sufficient for any tragedy that occurs in Labrador. Because any time you have to wait for resources to come from such a vast distance away, uh, lives are being lost in the process while you're just waiting for them to arrive. Yeah, especially when the Minister Anand came to Five Wing Goose with an announcement that entails billions and billions and billions of dollars to be invested in four northern bases based on our commitment to NORAD, but still had the gall to say that it was adequate services being provided for whether it be subarctic, arctic, and or Labrador itself. Uh, Jeanette, I admire you for what you're doing, I have to say. Do you or your family have a relationship with the Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company? We do. My husband's actually president of the Labrador Fishermen's Union Shrimp Company, so we, we have a really good partnership with them. We've had nothing but tremendous support from them right from the get-go. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, there, we've got so many excellent partners on our side that are lobbying with us to make these changes come come to fruition and uh, we are we are so blessed in in that regard i thought your husband was the president but i couldn't remember so i thought i'd just asked the vague question because when the transportation safety board did an investigation whether it be you know it was the loss of the sarah ann in placentia bay and then of course the loss of your uh, your boy and joey uh from mary's harbor and then your husband and the shrimp company itself they took on the expense to equip 70 vessels what they call an epurb an emergency position indicating radio beacon that seemed to be such an excellent idea i know it comes with costs easy enough for me to spend a fisherman's money but when you have the ability to transmit a signal to a satellite to get a really pinpoint you know where you are whether it be uh, on the sea or not that's something that i really th- i really admired that as well by the, the shrimp company to do that because that's part of the proactive that the individuals and in- enterprise owners can take while we wait for government to get off their duff and do what they need to do Exactly. And when we met, we had meetings in Ottawa in early February and one of the, you know, with the Minister of uh, Public Safety. And one of the first things I noted to him was that, you know, if we want to better protect our fish harvesters, then it should be mandatory that an EPR be be stationed on every vessel. Right now, uh, Transport Canada has a stipulation that any vessel under 12 meters is not required to have an EPIRB, which makes no sense. Your vessels that are under 12 meters are at the greatest risk of uh, crisis at sea. So they're you know, they need it more, not more, but they need it just as much as the larger vessels. Uh, so, you know, and, and it's, you know, an EPIRB, uh, first first conversations when I was talking to Merv Wiseman about, you know, because I, I, I'm still learning a lot and there's a lot I don't know and there's a lot I don't understand when it comes to marine safety. But I said, you know, one day in conversation, I said, Merv, what does it ask, what does an EPIRB cost? Because I figured it was like tens of thousands of dollars for for not to be required or managed mandatory on a fishing vessel under 12 meters and he said Jeanette you know less than a thousand dollars you know for the sake of less than a thousand dollars and then so then I said I said to Merv I said 
okay, but then there's going to be a monthly fee to keep it active or whatever. And he's like, no, once it's activated, it's always activated. <laughs> you know, there's no recurring costs afterwards. And I I cannot wrap my head around the fact that something that costs less than $1,000 is not mandatory on all fishing vessels. To me, as a mother or as a wife, that's a Christmas gift. Right? That's right. Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. I don't know why we're making distinctions based on length of vessel. If you're lost, you're lost. Exactly, exactly. And there's more harm going to come to you sometimes in a smaller vessel than in a larger vessel if you're lost. Sure. You know, in terms of, of a, a life raft and, and whatnot, the different safety provisions you're required to have on a certain size vessel. So, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. And, and you know, the, the Minister of Public Safety was, was really uh, receptive he was like, yeah, that seems like something that, you know, that's a no-cost solution to Ottawa to improve fish harvester safety. It doesn't cost Ottawa one cent to make it mandatory to have an EPIRB on all vessels. And the Minister of Public Safety, he said, uh, you know, we'll take that under advisement and probably do a, um, you know, a rollout of it. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, no, this is not something that needs to be phased in. This, is, You know, I, I, I just can't wrap my head around it that, we're haggling over something that costs less than a thousand dollars i really appreciate the time uh, again this morning jeanette and if you're so inclined an update after your meeting with minister anon to be welcomed as well okay thanks so much patty thanks for this take care have a good day you too bye-bye that's jeanette russell her son mark and his best buddy joey lost in september of 2021 take our final break of the morning don't go away Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Linda, you're on the air. <coughs> Hello, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How about you? Oh, good, good, good. I was listening to one of your previous callers, and he was talking about global warming and El Nino and the effect it's going to have on our uh, climate and everything else. And, um, you know, I'm always reading about that. But he was talking about it, uh, reducing our carbon footprint. And I know, like I said, ending this, uh, like, planes, cars, everything else, like I said, the carbon, you know, it's all contributing you know, to our, a larger carbon footprint. Sure. And you had mentioned that you were going to go to Toronto this summer. Yep. And uh, you asked him, well, should I not go? And he didn't respond. But I was just curious because I don't know which causes a bigger carbon footprint, going on the flight in a plane or if you took your car and paid for your gas and drove to Toronto this summer, would you be reducing your carbon footprint then or increasing it? That's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know if I have a definitive answer, but I know there's a couple of variables that have to be put in there. The type of vehicle you're driving, the number of people you're traveling with, uh, those two things, I think, factor in. If I remember correctly, I read a story that said if you're traveling with three or more people. So in an aircraft with 300 passengers, if all 300 drove their own car, of course, I would admit more than simply taking a, a traveling via air. But in the world of three, that's an interesting case study. So the story came from the United States, I remember, because it was talking about flights from New York City to Los Angeles. So I think probably very similar overlaps here. On the flight, the emissions would be something like 0.6 or 0.7 tons of carbon dioxide per person. 
per passenger. Okay. The exact same trip in a vehicle based on the fuel consumption, or pardon me, the fuel, fuel efficiency, of course, and some of those variables, it would actually emit over one ton or 1.2 or 3 tons of carbon emissions. So it sounds like in those scenarios, flying is the better bet for reducing carbon emissions. Oh, so that's excellent then. Yeah, I but mean, you're going to have so many passengers going. Like you said, if you have 300 people on the flight to Toronto and versus three or four people in the car... Yeah, if everyone drove their own car, then I believe the way I remember the story is, is if everyone was in the one aircraft versus everyone was in their own car, the flight would be more efficient than driving. Very good. I was, yeah, I was curious about that because I heard your previous caller, and uh, I've heard him, uh, you know, multiple times, and uh, he seems to be very knowledgeable about a lot of uh, subjects and everything else. I was thinking it's too bad that he doesn't take the time to go into government. He might straighten up some of the crowd in there. Yeah, he's actually run for office uh, a couple of times, municipally and provincially, if I'm not mistaken. But now that you've put that question in my mind, I will spend some time this afternoon trying to get the facts, because sometimes my recall is okay, sometimes not so good. So oh, I know. I'm after listening to you on a regular basis, but I can't hear you in the morning. I listen to the, the repeats in the nighttime. Okay. And I'm amazed, I was amazed by how much knowledge you can store up in that head. Well, I don't overthink it. But I will do some reading this afternoon about that issue, because I'm not so sure. Uh, I think the numbers I gave are pretty accurate, but I will try to figure that out a little bit more clearly today. Yeah. And I appreciate the time, Linda. Anything else you want to say? I heard your previous caller, like I said, to keep running. For sure. Fair enough. Okay, good enough. Thank nice you. to talk to you. You too. Bye. Right, bye bye. Yeah, so if anyone out there knows the answer to that question and can articulate it better than I just did, uh, send me the info because I'll be happy to do some reading this afternoon on it. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Marvin. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. It's uh, Marvin Barnes calling. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm calling basically on behalf of uh, Branch 56 of the Royal Canadian Legion. Uh, who has been sponsoring Fort Townsend Sea Cadets and Fort Pepperell Navy League Cadets for over 55 years. And we are having to wind down now to uh, our large uh, annual fundraiser uh, this Thursday night coming at Branch 56, Pleasantville. Um, and I just want to uh, go through that if I might. Uh, the tickets are $20 apiece. Each ticket gives you 21 chances at a a package valued at over eleven thousand uh, dollars. In each winning, sorry, each winning ticket will be put back into the drum for the uh, remaining prize draws. Now, our main draw is a one-hour helicopter ride around St. John's for two to three people, and there's twenty additional prizes uh, of thousand five one thousand dollar prizes, five five hundred dollar prizes, five two hundred dollar prizes, and five one hundreds. Uh, and again, this is a fundraiser for the two cadet corps that the Legion Branch 56 has uh, sponsored for over 55 years, including myself as a sea cadet 55 years ago. Uh, we have over 60 youth from the community involved uh, from ages 9 to 16. Uh, so we're having what we're calling a mega event at the Pleasantville Legion uh, this coming Thursday, day after tomorrow, May 18th, uh, starting with live entertainment uh, with awesome music from, from Noel Worthman from 5 to 7. And our restaurant is open until 7 with lots of good food, so, you know, you can make a night of it. 
At 7 o'clock, we will draw at the time, we'll start the 21 draws for more than $11,000 in prizes. Um, basically, uh, we're going to stream this live on Facebook as well. Uh, so, we're, I guess we're inviting the public to... Uh, to come on down and uh, you know maybe purchase a ticket and have a meal and make a little evening of it and uh, you know uh, this is a great great uh, cadets by the way to all the parents out there uh, Navy League cadets and sea cadets are excellent organizations for youth these days and uh, you know we strongly encourage them to encourage the kids to consider uh, taking part and the age range is uh, from 9 to 18 What's participation like these days? Uh, well, no, it's not what it used to be. Back in the day, by the day I'm talking about the mid-60s, you know, we had quite a few cadets, so certainly over 100. Uh, right now we have a total of uh, 60 in the two cores, uh, which is up. Uh, we took a bit of a hit during COVID, of course, because uh, gatherings were banned and all this sort of thing, but that's coming back now. And we had some very successful recruiting this this past year. It's past winter, I should say. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly a growing concern. There's no question about it. Well, hopefully you have some success here on Thursday night. Actually, one of the members of the Legion invited me to be part of it, and I have something on, unfortunately, which means I can't make it. But uh, they got a new chef down at the Legion as well. The food is delicious. I'll throw that in there. The food is actually really good at the Legion down in Pleasantville. So that's another opportunity for folks to in- encourage themselves to take place, bring along a few shekels, support the Sea Cadets. And I appreciate your time this morning, Marvin. Thanks for this, sir. Thanks for taking the call, Betty. Anytime. All the best. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, one of the lads uh, did invite me to come down and I think draw the winning tickets or what have you, and I absolutely would have, but I've got something on Thursday night which prohibits me from doing it. All right, final check-in on the Twitter box. Wherever you see open line, you know what to do. Follow us there. Comments on what you heard today. Suggestions for tomorrow. We're into the future. Always welcome there. Same thing with our email. It's openlineatfeocium.com. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.